welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today I have a special treat for you. I'm uh, continuing on uh, fulfilling my promises to uh, some of my listeners and that sort of thing and doing my review shows. So in this case, I'm going to be reviewing uh, Caleb, my good friend, Caleb Jackson, who's a Christian apologist and he's been making the rounds. He, he's got his own book out on Jesus' resurrection. And so he's made um, a two-part video, and we're going to be watching part one here. And this is interesting. So a Christian's case against the resurrection. So what Caleb Jackson here, he's going to be taking on an old, out, uh, an old uh, Catholic uh, tradition of playing the devil's advocate. So he's going to be putting on his atheist or skeptic hat today and kind of going over the case against the resurrection of Jesus, the what he thinks is the best steel man case for the atheist that the atheist can say uh, proves that the resurrection is false uh, or didn't happen in his view. And he wants me to go over that and review it. Um, so yeah, I'll just say that I, uh, I fully support this approach. I think it's great to look at things from a different perspective and that will help sharpen the iron of the case for the resurrection. You know, we'll, find out where the weak points are and be able to fix those. Uh, we'll be, if there are failed arguments, we'll be able to discard those as shaft um, and then really hone in and focus and improve the strong points of the argument. So I think that this is a valuable exercise. Um, playing devil's advocate, it helps foster better conversations and evangelizing with atheists and skeptics. If they can see, look, we're taking your side seriously and we're trying our best to present your side to the best of our ability and respond to that rather than just attracting straw men or going for low hanging fruit and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I approve of this approach. I remember advocating for this approach on my skeptics and seekers days with David Johnson. Um, of course, back then, he, I, I just said, maybe once a year, let's swap places. I'll be the atheist and argue for that. And you be the Christian and argue from that perspective. Um, unfortunately, for me, he was so biased, he couldn't do that. He said, oh, it'll cause me mental, psychological damage, total lies. But uh, he was, in real life, he's just biased and doesn't want to advance the Christian side or even consider the Christian side seriously at all. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's good, great. So our enemies wanna be in their own biased atheistic bubble. Well, Christians are better than that. We're superior, we're willing to look at different perspectives and jump into the shoes of an atheist or a skeptic looking at the evidence for the resurrection uh, and steel man in that position and then respond to that as Christians and refute that nonsense. <laughs> Sorry, my bias there, but um, you know what I'm saying. Re respond to the best that the atheists have. So here's Caleb doing an excellent job. Thank goodness the guy's on our side and the Christian because uh, he provides a very substantive case against the resurrection here. So with that said, let's get into the first segment. Um, I'm, it's a long video, one hour long, so I'm not going to play it all without interruption. Instead, I'm just going to play certain segments and then come in and, and give my review uh, at those times. So let's play the first part. Hey guys, welcome back to the channel. Today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. This is going to be a two-part series, if you call it a lecture. Um, if you will, uh, we're going to be looking today at the resurrection, specifically the most famous miracle in history, the pinnacle and cornerstone of all of Christianity. 
we're going to be looking at both sides. So this video is actually going to be a devil's advocate. I'm going to be arguing as honestly as I can think of, at least, uh, the position of the skeptic. And so in this video, I'm going to be taking on the position of someone who would give case against the resurrection. I'm going to try to steel man and give the best case against the resurrection that I uh, think is, is possible and that I think is good. Um, and then in the next video, which I will make shortly after this, I will give the best case for the resurrection that it could be done. And um, one is free to watch those compare and to come to their own conclusions. Now, um, a lot of people might be wondering why uh, I would take this route. But I think the idea of looking at the evidence honestly is important. And I think before anyone makes any um, important life decision, that they really should consider all sides and all possibilities beforehand um, and then come to their own conclusions. I think that's the honest way to do epistemology. And we really need to look at all arguments on all sides. And the notion of the devil's advocate actually comes from Christianity. It comes from Catholicism. Uh, whenever the Catholic Church is canonizing a saint, at least they, they used to do it this way. They would have a devil's advocate who is called the promoter of the faith, the advocatus diaboli, uh, to come and basically give the case against the saint becoming um, canonized into heaven to being beatified. And that's how the idea works. So um, to use Josh McDowell's uh, analogy, if the resurrection is on trial, if this is evidence that demands a verdict, Today, I'll be playing the role of prosecutor. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a fedora to really unleash my uh, internet atheist personality. I'll, the closest thing I have is an anarchy hat, which has an A. So for the purposes of this presentation, the A will be for atheism in this case. So without further ado. Just want to say you can see that Caleb Jackson over here, uh, good old Caleb here, has uh, about as uh, good a sense of humor as I do. Um, yeah, I think we need to work on our, our jokes a little bit there, but <laughs> just kidding. It was a good one. All right, let's go. Let's get started and look at the case against the resurrection of Jesus Christ, shall we? All right, here we go. All right. I present to you the case against the resurrection of Christ, the devil's advocate. Now, first, I think when we look at any situation for this, especially for the resurrection, and we'll be doing this in both parts, both before and the negative side, we're going to be looking at three things. One, the prior probability, two, the historical evidence, and three, the explanatory power and modern repercussions of such theories. So we're going to start off with the prior probability for the resurrection. All right, so just uh, butting in here. So in terms of the general methodology, um, I think it's good. So obviously, yes, we have the prior probability. Uh, this has been logically proven. It's something that you need to look at. Uh, you know, it's probability calculus or mathematics and just plain logic. You, you need, when assessing the truth and or falsity of a given hypothesis, you need to know what the prior probability is based on the relevant background knowledge. So, that, so that's kind of different. Some, sometimes atheists, uh, if you remember from my Evil God Challenge show, right? Atheists try to employ the bracketing move. So that's where they... Well, even if you could prove that the prior probability of an evil God is 0%, it's impossible for an evil God to exist, we can just, who cares, bracket off the prior probability or the intrinsic probability and just focus on the, uh, the symmetry of the evidence itself, a uh, posteriori, or I can't say that word, a posteriori, oh goodness, okay, with the evidence, the, the after the evidence kind of thing. Um, and assess that, assess those. So yeah, I think it's great that he's putting in the prior probability here. Um, you can't bracket that off. It's 
you need to consider the relevant background uh, knowledge. Uh, I, and obviously, so his next component, okay, well, what's the actual evidence for it? The probability of the evidence. So that comes in two parts for Caleb here. He's gonna assess the historical evidence, which presumably might entail an evaluation of the historical sources that's included as part of the evidence and how you get the historical facts. Um, and then he's on the next level, the explanatory level of evaluating and assessing the various explanatory hypotheses, um, specifically the resurrection hypothesis and how that, um, how that relates to the criterion of explanatory power. Um, so that's great. I think that the explanatory power is a very weighty um, criterion. Not sure what he means by logical implications. Maybe that's something akin to the criterion of illumination. Uh, one thing I'll just say here is, okay, great. So I understand his method. Um, there are other uh, best explanation inference criteria that could be employed, things like explanatory scope or less ad hoc components or simplicity um, being, being involved and that sort of thing. So you could also, you know, the prior probability that's relates to plausibility. So he's covering that. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I would just ask, well, why just explanatory power? Why not explanatory scope or less ad hoc or simplicity criteria as well? I, I guess it's, my guess is just, look, he's, he's tackling the most weighty criterion uh, because he doesn't have time to give a, a full on case in a one hour video. So yeah, that, that's all I wanted to say there. In terms of his general methodology, great, I get it. And for the most part, looks good. Uh, nothing really to critique. So let's continue on with his bit about the prior probability here. So we start off with the prior probability for the resurrection, which is um, pretty important in this regard. It's not important just of the evidence in a vacuum. When you look to look at the context theologically and historically as well. So um, just for the sake of argument, we're going to grant in this that God exists and that miracles can theoretically happen. So we're not going to say that we have an anti-supernatural bias. We're not going to say people don't rise from the dead because people don't rise from the dead and assume naturalism. Um, we're going to grant to make it better for the Christian in this situation uh, that these things are possible. And yet we're still going to say that even granting that the resurrection may not be the best explanation. All right, so first we should really look at okay, what so the is. So I'm just going to pause that. Okay, great. So in terms of the prior probability, so this is the first factor that Caleb's looking at. Uh, as I said, I think this is great. This is what we need, where we need to start when we're evaluating the truth or falsity of any given hypothesis. Um, now, one thing I just want to mention here as a general point about prior probability, and this is this is key. I'm going to be looking at this as I review Caleb's video here, I'm going to be assessing when we uh, assess the prior probability or the intrinsic probability of a given hypothesis, it is crucial that we only include background information or knowledge or evidence that is relevant to the given hypothesis that we're assessing. So in some cases, for example, my friends, Dr. Gary Habermas or Mike Lacona, when they employ a minimal facts approach, to studying the resurrection, you'll often hear them say things, you know, atheists and skeptics will bring up, oh, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible, right? Look in the Old Testament, is it 5,000 horses or 500 horses? They contradict. Or in the New Testament, there's contradictions, right? Uh, is it, uh, did Judas hang himself or did his bowels burst open or something like that? And they'll point out these contradictions. And 
Obviously, there can be responses to harmonize these. These aren't necessarily contradictions. But what Gary Habermas and, and some Christian apologists will argue under the minimal facts approach, they'll say, let's, let's grant you, for the sake of argument, let's grant that those are contradictions in the secondary details. They'll say, who cares? Those are irrelevant uh, and therefore uh, to the truth or falsity of the hypothesis at stake. And usually the hypothesis is Jesus rose from the dead. Um, well, what does that mean? Did he rise naturalistically or not? Blah, blah, blah. And so usually there, it's implied, okay, well, the hypothesis isn't just that Jesus rose from the dead, because we're not saying he rose naturalistically. Um, we're saying, well, Jesus rose, God rose Jesus from the dead. What's the prior probability of that? That's the hypothesis. Um, or as I think it, it, one needs to argue for, it's not just that God rose Jesus from the dead, but God rose Jesus from the dead to authenticate the Christian religion. That is that true or not? That's the hypothesis we're setting up. And therefore, when we're assessing our background information or prior probability factors, um, it need, we need to be clear on what is the hypothesis at stake and what is the background evidence that's relevant specific to that hypothesis versus irrelevant. Because if our hypothesis is just, well, God rose Jesus from the dead, let's say for the sake of argument, which is what Gary Habermas and that usually have in mind, well, then obviously God, uh, contradictions in the Gospels or in Acts about how Judas died is totally irrelevant to the truth or falsity of that hypothesis. That said, a contradiction like that may be relevant to a different hypothesis. For example, the hypothesis that Christianity is true. Christianity as a whole is true. Okay, well, then you can make up an argument that, well, if Christianity is true, then biblical inerrancy has to be true. Uh, biblical inerrancy is not true. Therefore, that this is a factor that shows that the hypothesis is fault, probably false. Great, you can make that argument. I, I, again, I'm not advocating that it's true or not, but I'm just saying as an example to illustrate here, right? I don't think the contradiction about Judas would be relevant to the hypothesis God rose Jesus from the dead, or even to the hypothesis that God rose Jesus from the dead to authenticate Christianity or Christianity proper. Because when we're talking about Christianity authentication here, we're just talking about the gospel truths, the essential doctrines uh, of Christianity uh, and practices of Christianity. We're not talking about secondary or tertiary details here. Uh, at least not necessarily. I, I think we can argue that Christianity proper is just the gospel truths, the deity, death, resurrection, there's one God, stuff of that nature. So whenever we're coming up with background knowledge, it needs to be relevant to this specific hypothesis, that God rose Jesus from the dead, uh, at most for the purpose of authenticating the Christian religion. As to what Caleb has in mind here, I think, I don't even know if Caleb is going that far, maybe he it seems like what he has in mind here from what he's granting is, look, he's just assessing the hypothesis is that God rose Jesus from the dead. That's the hypothesis, in which case certain contradictions would be totally irrelevant and that sort of thing. Now, um, the other thing I would say here is I do like uh, that he's granting as an atheist with his atheist cap on, uh, he is granting a couple things uh, in terms of the relevant background knowledge. He's saying, let's just grant that God exists, or at the very least, 
it's it, there's an equal probability that God exists or doesn't exist. We're not going to use that as a claim to say that there's a low prior probability, less than 50% prior probability that uh, God rose Jesus from the dead. That's it's not going to the existence of God. The question there is not going to count against or for uh, that the truth or falsity of our hypothesis about God raising Jesus from the dead one way or the other. And secondly, he's also granting, th this is great too, because um, he's granting, look, miracles can theoretically happen. Um, they're, they're possible, they're plausible events that can take place. And that corresponds to premise seven in my, so my in my 11 premise, it should be a 10 premise, but for the sake of, for, for right now, it's an 11 premise argument as to how I came to faith. Premise one is that God exists. And then premise seven, before I get into premise eight, which is my criteria, for identifying a miraculous event or a religious authenticating miracle or miraculous event there, I have to prove that it's equally possible in certain circumstances. And yeah, so he's just granting that. So that's great because I, I find it so tedious having to debate atheists and skeptics all the time about the prior probability of miracles based on frequentist type arguments. Here he's just granting that because otherwise it just gets tedious. So. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And great. So we grant God. Uh, well, okay. So one thing I should say about this miracles thing. So you'll typically get atheists and skeptics giving frequentist type accounts. So they'll say, well, look, out of all the billions of people who've ever existed, virtually none of them have been raised from the dead. Therefore, the prior probability that Jesus would have been risen from the dead or that God would have risen Jesus from the dead is, I don't know, one chance, one chance out of 50 billion, however many people who've not been risen from the dead that have ever lived throughout all of human history. Well, this is total garbage. You're a fool if you think that this is a good argument. Why? Why is this the case? Well, think about it. The frequency... First of all, we're asking the hypothesis that God rose Jesus from the dead. So it's not a question of just people randomly raising from random people raising from the dead. It's we have to assess that God would raise Jesus from the dead. And implicit in that is that given he had a motivating reason to raise Jesus from the dead, God doesn't have motivating reasons to raise most people from the dead. He just lets the laws of nature take over for most random people. Uh, so that's the only thing that matters. That it's totally irrelevant that 20 billion people don't raise from the dead because God has the power and ability and as a free will agent chooses to raise Jesus because he has a motivating reason to. Um, just because it's a unique, and it's actually not unique in the Bible, there are other resuscitations at least, other raising, raisings of the dead. Um, but the, the point is here is, is we're talking about God as a, as a personal free will agent who is capable of doing unique events for certain reasons. Uh, the frequency of how many times he's done that with other human beings randomly is just irrelevant. That's not relevant background information. It shouldn't play a role in the prior probabilities. Likewise, I've, I've heard some cleverer atheists and skeptics like Ball, the atheist, for example, who's been on the shows, he argues from a divine modus operandi type thing. And he'll say, look, I, I grant you that 
statistics are totally irrelevant in terms of random peeps. Who cares about the billions of people who have never been raised? That's irrelevant. But religious heroes in the Bible, even restricting it to the Bible. So I'm granting you the biblical God for crying out loud. Most of the people, biblical heroes in there are not rose, risen from the dead. Moses wasn't risen from the dead. King David wasn't risen from the dead. We have verses saying he's corrupted and stuff. Uh, King Solomon wasn't. None of the prophets were. Um, so therefore, it's, it's even granting the biblical God, it, there's this frequentist argument that there's a low prior probability that the biblical God would want to raise Jesus because God hasn't risen the majority of biblical heroes. And this is a kind of a nuanced take on the frequentist approach where it, it says, uh, it takes into account only certain types of people. Is this relevant background information or background evidence to prove that there's a low prior probability that God would raise Jesus from the dead? No. Um, again, because of that implication that given God had motivating reasons to, God did not have motivating reasons to raise the majority of biblical heroes from the dead. He did have a motivating reason, or or we can be, it, it's an open question, 50-50 agnostic, uh, until we look at the evidence as to whether God had a motivating reason um, to raise Jesus from the dead. Um, so yeah, the, what the atheist has to do is, is prove, number one, that God did not have a motivating reason to raise Jesus from the dead. If he can do that, then that would prove there's a low prior probability that God would have risen Jesus from the dead. And that would count against the truth of our hypothesis. That, that's one approach that an atheist would have to do. A second approach is, well, look, I mentioned in the Bible, there are 10 other, at least resuscitations. There's a, a difference between resurrection and what Jesus had as the first fruits and resuscitation. I'm not going to get into that theological difference, but for the sake, let's just say raisings from the dead and, and equate them all, right? So you're dead and then all of a sudden you're alive again. Uh, so a, a raising here. Um, well, there's, there's other accounts um, in the Bible. Lazarus for is a case in point, for example, right? He rose from the dead. Jesus rose him. Um, so what, you, would what you, you could do on a frequentist approach is try to say, well, look, Jesus uh, God, or the biblical God and or God had a motivating reason to raise these other people. And the majority of those people that he had motivating reasons for we can prove that he didn't raise them. So this would require the atheist or the skeptic to actually prove on a balance of probabilities that Lazarus did not historically raise from the dead or that uh, any of the other people mentioned in the Old Testament or New Testament, like Tabitha, they did probably didn't rise from the dead. And obviously since they're mentioned of arising from the dead, we can prove that God did have a motivating reason uh, or is claimed to have such um, to raise these people, if we can prove, but they didn't, in fact, raise from the dead, that's another way you can establish, yep, there would be a low prior probability um, that God would have risen Jesus from the dead. So those are the two ways, if you want to make a frequentist argument, you have, you have, to, um, you have to take those routes. Um, otherwise, it, the statistics are just totally irrelevant. Appealing to random people in history, irrelevant background knowledge, appealing to the frequency of biblical heroes that have been risen versus not risen, 
totally irrelevant to the situation to the the notion that God would uh, raise Jesus from the dead, given he had motivating reasons to do so. Um, so yeah, uh, that that's it about the this part of the prior probability aspect. Uh, so yeah, as we move forward, I want to take a look at the factors that Caleb actually does uh, look at in terms of the assessing the prior probability. Um, and that the skeptic over here, Caleb the atheist, uh, thinks actually do prove there would be uh, a lower prior probability and that are relevant to uh, the truth of the resurrection hypothesis. So let's take a look at his first consideration here. In this situation, uh, that these things are possible, and yet we're still going to say that even granting that, the resurrection may not be the best explanation. All right. So first, we should really look at what is bodily resurrection, at least in the Christian sense. Well, in Christianity, the resurrection is not just something that means we're going to live eternally as a disembodied soul. No, it's an embodied existence in the afterlife. But it's not just that you live in a body, it's that you live in the same body. Now, it's a transformed body. It is a body that is incorruptible and perfect, but it's still the original body. God is not discarding your old body and getting a new one. It's the transformation, the changing of it. Uh, it's not a clone of your of your old body, but this gets into some really confusing um, philosophical questions, such as, you know, what about bodies that have been cremated? What about atoms that have been shared by multiple people over the years? When a body rots on the ground and becomes part of the soil, and vegetables grow into the soil, or water runs through it, the atoms go through different people. And so, the point is, when you break down this um, on an atomic level, it really gets confusing as to what counts as your body um, at that point, especially if ashes have been scattered. So. Even though God is omnipotent, God cannot do, at least in traditional theism, cannot do the logically impossible. And so the argument here is that if resurrection, if the idea of keeping your original body that's going to be transformed to where, it's the, or to, to where it is the actual original body is logically incoherent, then this would basically make the resurrection, no pun intended, dead on arrival, um, or at least very improbable, and we have no experience with this. And so, yeah, does, does God have to keep track of every atom and how many original atoms are needed for it to be the same body? Um, this is comparable to the ship of Theseus, where you have two ships, and every year you take one piece of wood from that ship and put it in a new ship and replace that one with a new piece of wood. After all the wood has been exchanged, which one is the original ship? You could do that with the atoms of a person. How many atoms does it take for you to be the same person? Obviously, it's not just one, because um, I could, you know, skin cells rub, rub off on people all the time. So, how many? How many atoms does it take for it to be considered the same body? These are questions that philosophers argued about, and it just makes the notion of uh, bodily resurrection problematic for anyone who is affirming it. All right. Uh, oh, yeah, here's another slide about that, uh, about these interesting thought questions that St. Augustine talked about, Pagan's mentioning is, when somebody's body has been eaten by another man who turns to cannibalism on the compulsion of hunger, into whose body will it return at the resurrection? Again, you get these really confusing thought experiments where the answer is not uh, overly clear. All right. But okay, so Jesus? that's Let's it for the question this. Uh, is there any okay. reason? All right. So backing up. Okay, great. So here's his next factor here. And it's um, basically the the fact that the bodily bodily resurrection of Jesus is incoherent or implausible under the criterion of plausibility. It, as an incoherent thing, it's totally implausible. So this, this seems like a devastating argument in favor of the atheist, right? Um, and Caleb's getting this from a, a biblical scholar, famous biblical scholar, 
who's known for his doubts and that sort of thing, Dr. Dale Allison. Um, I really like him. He's really smart and I, I love his book on the resurrection and that sort of thing. He, he is kind of a skeptic, kind of a skeptic at times and, you know, has doubts and stuff like that. <clears throat> but his work is valid scholarship and you need to take it seriously. All biblical scholars, including evangelical Christians like Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas or William Lane Craig, they all recognize, look, this guy's work and research is something you need to reckon with. He's not just a fundy lay atheist or skeptic on the internet. Uh, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And he raises a very interesting prior probability consideration here. So the first thing that we need to ask when we're assessing this is, okay, well, is this in fact relevant background knowledge? Now, believe it or not, Dr. Dale Allison would say, no, who cares? The hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead, given he had a motivating reason to do so, such as authenticating the Christian religion, that's totally unaffected. Let's pretend we grant that the, bot, the bodily resurrections are in fact incoherent for the reasons stated by Caleb here. Who cares? We can bracket that consideration out. It's totally irrelevant because Christianity, it's talking about a spiritual resurrection. Um, and you can make, Dale Allison makes that argument. He'll, he'll say it's not essential for Christianity to be true, nor, nor is it an essential belief, an authenticating doctrine of Christianity that you have to posit Jesus being bodily risen from the dead. Obviously, there's going to be debate about that. Was well, that true? Is, is it not? Um, I, I think that it's pretty clear from the evidence that the Bible does say Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Um, there's overwhelming historical and biblical and external uh, historical sources from that time, Jewish sources of the time, uh, on a balance of probabilities, it's very, very extremely probable that Jesus was risen bodily from the dead. Now, whether that's an essential belief of Christianity or not, um, that's the key question. You need to ask that because only then would this be relevant background knowledge. Um, now, obviously, if you do think it is essential and or if you think it's so important, um, I definitely think that. Um, that it, it needs to be a part of the hypothesis. Okay, great. We can modify the hypothesis. What is the uh, prior probability that God would raise Jesus bodily from the dead, um, given he had a motivating reason to do so, such as authenticating the Christian religion? So this is a bit of a mouthful, but this is the hypothesis we have in mind. In that case, this factor would be rel a relevant consideration. And yeah, like I said, I think the evidence is clear that it is, when we're talking about Jesus, um, it is a bodily resurrection that he had. It's not a spiritual resurrection like what Dale Allison thinks. Um, but again, he, he might be right that it's not essential. Anyways, for, forget about that. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that bodily resurrection is part of the hypothesis. We need to argue for the bodily resurrection. If that's the case, well, then how do we escape this prior probability argument? Well, there are a few ways that I can think of. So the first thing to do is to admit, um, yeah, given the new modified hypothesis that we're positing bodily resurrection, this is definitely a relevant objection and it's a substantial one. 
Um, it's something, this is something that's not just new on the block with atheists, modern atheists and skeptics or, or doubters like Dale Allison. This is an objection, as Caleb mentioned in his uh, thing, he quoted uh, Augustine talking about pagans. Uh, where is that? Oh, geez. Okay, I've lost it, whatever. Um, anyways, but uh, he quotes pagans taught they didn't believe in bodily resurrections for this reason. This is why they thought one of the reasons they thought it was absurd for Jews to believe in such a thing and or Christians. Um, Dr. Dale Allison, in his book, he also quotes uh, early Jews, rabbis in rabbinic debates, um, talking about how, you know, what's the minimal amount of body that we need in order to be resurrected. Uh, because obviously they were aware at that time of bodies being cremated or obliterated or eaten by cannibals and, and stuff like that. And they gave these types of thought experiments explicitly. Like Caleb's taking this from the ancient Jews and stuff in ancient worlds. Um, so some people say, well, the core person, that the, the Cossack's bone, if you have that stump of your spine, you're, that's all you need to be resurrected. And, and you have the Jews speculating about, well, the Messiah is going to come back, uh, come on Mount on the Mount of Olives in the end time. So what about the bones that are buried outside of the Mount of Olives and away from Jerusalem? Oh, well, there'll be this miraculous tunnels that goes underground and the bones come rolling into Jerusalem and stuff like that. So this was something that bothered people back in Jesus' time. They, they were interpreting resurrection to mean, to entail this continuity and for them the resurrection was linked to the skeleton the bones specifically you needed and obviously the debate of well, what is it you need you didn't need a full skeleton you need the minimal amount you needed is the cossack bone for example some rabbis argued and, and stuff like that um, but it's it's specifically linked to the skeletons in this ancient time um Okay, great. Well, obviously we still have this problem then because sometimes skeletons are totally obliterated or what about when there's cremation and stuff like that? How are these guys going to be raised? So number one, here's an interesting answer, something that I think Caleb probably has never even heard of or considered. I'm, I'm hoping I learned about it at a philosophical, I totally disagree with it, by the way. But it totally resolves this issue. It keeps bodily resurrection and there's no problems at all. Um, it, down to the very molecules and atoms, every last drop, uh, you are the same, same peep, identical. Um, well, the, a guy at a philosophy conference, a guy named uh, Scott Hill, argued for the uh, a quantum theory of resurrection. And I'm going to link to this paper on my blog site. So Caleb, you can download it and read it for free and that sort of thing. But his basic idea is that, look, in quantum mechanics, there's this thing called uh, uh, superposition, right? So this is the famous thing. Oh, is if a cat's in a box, no one's observing it. Is it dead or is it alive? Oh, well, some people say, well, it's both. It's both dead and alive. Both states of affairs uh, are happening concurrently in you know the in this thing called superposition um so this is a adopting a no collapse interpretation of quantum mechanics kind of like sean carroll he has this multiverse type theory right there's multiple things and they're all his difference is that they all become actualized but what scott hill is arguing here is so at the time you're dead 
your body goes into a state of superposition where it's dead and alive, rotting and not rotting um, because you're living. And then at the time of the resurrection, the collapse theory, the, these alternative, um, I don't know how to say it, the, 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 other, the other things collapse into this reality and oh, you've got your living body. Every single molecule you had at the moment of your death is still there. So that's, that's Scott Hill's answer to this. Now, obviously, this still runs into philosophical problems of identity because these things are not identical. So I, I totally reject this, this answer, but it is still, it's a totally physicalist answer. You don't need to rely on a soul or anything like this. Um, and it resolves the issue. So I suggest, you know, give this a read, Caleb, if, if you find it on my blog. You may find it interesting, but... Nonetheless, I still personally reject this because it still raises the same philosophical issues of identity. Why does it still raise the philosophical issues of identity? Well, it's basically because, um, okay, so it's basically due to the fact of what is the body? What type of thing is the physical body? And I think that it, it is a property thing. It is not a, uh, let me see if I go, oops. It is not a su enduring substance, right? So there are several things that differentiate, but one of the major things, and Caleb mentions this in the show is, look, property things are physical objects. They do not endure as the same thing through physical change or alteration over time. Um, so in order to be a property thing, both the physical parts, so your molecules and stuff in your body, but not only that, also the relations have to be the same. If there's any change in that, you're a totally different property thing. So, you know, Caleb talks about loss of skin cells. Yep. When I lose a single skin cell, my body is a totally different body. And this is a position called muriological essentialism in philosophy, and that's the view I take. Muriology, just so you know, is the study of parts and holes and their relationships in philosophy. Um, our bodies are not substances. Our, the soul is the enduring substance. This is why I endure through physical change as the same person. It's because of my non-material, non-physical soul. Um, so that's the answer here, right? And I, I think that this matches the Bible. What does it mean to be alive versus dead? And remember, resurrection to life. So if we look at that, um, uh, so in terms of death, right, the Bible clearly says death in general is separation, and there are different types of death. So for example, spiritual death is separation of you, your soul, from God. And by separation, we don't mean an ontological or causal separation. Obviously, God is still a say. You need to be in relationship to God in order to exist. And he sustains your existence even in hell when you're set totally separated from him. But what we're talking about here is a relational separation. So let me bring that up. Uh, a relational separation, right? Uh, so, for example, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 proves this. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So it's talking about a relational separation. That's what spiritual death is. 
Uh, obviously, we become spiritually alive when that gap through the atoning death of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, uh, we are able to relate to God again. Our sin doesn't create this gap. Um, we are connected back to God and, and relate to him for all of eternity. Okay, so what is physical death then? Well, again, it's separation, but this time it's body and soul. Our physical bodies are separated from our soul. That equals physical or earthly death. Um, so what does it mean to be alive? Well, it's when a soul is embodied, connected to a physical body governed by the human genome. That's what it means to be alive. So that's what resurrection is saying. It's saying your soul and your body are separated, and then they become intertwined again. Um, and that, that can follow in whatever model of substance dualism you take. You know, obviously, the Cartesian dualist, where you have two separate substances, thing types of two different things you have your body which is a property thing and then you have your soul which is a substance and there there there's two different things there's also the Thomistic or metaphysical aristotelian view of how the soul relates to the body that's the view i take that's where the body is more of a, a mode of the soul an outgrowth or manifestation of the soul itself your body is a part of your soul um, and then obviously at death, it separates, uh, and then at the time of resurrection, they become intertwined again in the same way as they were before you died. So that's, that's what I think resurrection is about. That's what biblical, the biblical definition of life versus death is. Um, so therefore, yeah, so how, how would we answer then this? If, if we don't take Scott Hill's answer about quantum resurrections uh, with quantum superposition being postulated here. Um, we obviously recognize that physical bodies are property things. They, they do not endure as the same thing over time. It's our soul that's doing that work. It's the soul that accounts for our numerical identity over time and continuity. Um, and resurrection means when our soul that continues on becomes embodied once again. Well, I, th I think it's, it's starting to come together. It doesn't matter about, we don't need it to be the same body. But then Caleb will say, well, in the Bible, all the examples, Jesus did rise, right? If you look at uh, biblical scholars like Dr. James Ware, evalu evaluating the first Corinthians creed, talking about going to sleep in that body and that body raises back up, wait, awakens back up again right there's that continuity of the physical body in mind and i think that's absolutely correct but that's more of a descriptive feature of jesus resurrection and all biblical resurrections that are narrated they all have this physical continuity right um in terms of the body being at least partially the same but again it's not down to the level of molecules as as caleb said look the molecules are leaving every second so that's not true um and in fact you have the same problem you're what about when you're living because every seven to eight years your body becomes completely brand new not a single atom molecule or cell that you had eight years ago is the same today you are a completely brand new set of cells molecules all of that good stuff you're totally brand new but yet you endure as the same person the Bible recognizes you as the same living person in your life. It's not going to say, oh, shoot, you don't have the same molecule. You must, you must be dead. You must be the same person. You're not, you're not the same. No, come on. Obviously, it's the non-physical soul that's enduring. You're the same person because your soul endures, even though your, your body is undergoing part 
uh, physical part and relational changes over time. To the extent that you're totally brand new, physically speaking, after a period of eight years, it's the same same thing here. You're just being ridiculous and over hyper literalistic in in getting in these quandaries about shoot. There needs to be physical continuity. No, it, it, the answer is simple. This is the same answer Gary Habermas, Dr. William Lane Craig, and Dr. Michael Kona give, and I, I think it's the right one. Um, look, who cares about your cells' bodies? Look, the point of resurrection. God will use your skeleton or body if it's available. If it's not doesn't matter. God will make duplicate uh, molecules and cells out of physical stuff and then have your soul become embodied in that physical stuff that takes on the form of your duplicated cells and molecules and that from when you had your original body. That's enough for the resurrection. That's all the Bible teaches. That's what the miracle of the resurrection is about. That soul becoming as it was meant to be embodied in a physical body governed by the human genome. And it is a duplicate of the cells and molecules that you had in your original body to whatever degree is sufficient for biblical continuity and unity of the bodies. Um, and as we know, we know that it's not down to the level of molecules. Just looking at taking death out of the picture, look, your body becomes an entirely new property thing every day. Uh, you get new molecules, lose cells, skin cells, hair cells all the time. So new physical parts and relations come about within the body all the time. And over a period of eight years, you are totally different physically speaking. Not a single cell or molecule is the same. Um, and that's not a problem for Dale Allison or the Bible or anything, the biblical view of the person um, so it's the same thing when we apply this to death. You, you don't need this um, level of molecule cont continuity in order for you to be raised from the dead. If there is any remains in any degree left of you, God will use that. Um, if there's not, it doesn't matter. God will use physical stuff and create a body and duplicate your old molecules and that so that you'll have a body that looks like what you used to look like. Uh, and then your soul be, will become entwined with that physical matter. That's a resurrection. That's what being raised to life is. You will be receiving physical life um, in the sense that your soul is connected to a physical body. That's all that you need. So that's my response to that. Um, I hope that was helpful. Like I said, Caleb, um, I think you might enjoy, if this is a huge issue for you personally, I know you're just playing devil's advocate, but maybe check out Scott Hill's uh, paper and see what you think of that. I, again, I, I don't buy it. I don't think it can work. Um, and it still suffers from physical identity issues. Um, but uh, yeah. All right, cool. So that's it for that. I will shut up and let's move on to his next prior probability factor. All right, so moving on to the second uh, prior probability factor that Caleb the atheist or Caleb the skeptic here is uh, talking about is the fact that Jesus isn't a good candidate for resurrection. Why? Because he's not a good candidate for being the Jewish Messiah. He did not fulfill messianic prophecy. Uh, so with that said, let's have Caleb uh, say his piece, uh, turning it over to Caleb the skeptic. All right, but what about Jesus? Let's put aside the question of bodily resurrection. 
Is there any reason Jesus would be raised from dead? Now, apologists like to say that Jesus is another category, that we're not just saying that any old person was just raised from dead. No, Jesus is special. Jesus was uh, exceptional in history. Well, um, is that really true? Well, first of all, um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, Jesus was the Messiah, so God has reasons to raise him from the dead to affirm his messianic ship. But the issue is that, you know, Jesus didn't really fulfill the messianic role in the traditional sense. Um, the Messiah in most Jewish circles, at least the Messiah uh, bar uh, David, and there might have been a Messiah bar Joseph as well. Um, the Messiah was supposed to be this military leader who would defeat the Romans or the enemies of Israel and defeat all evil on earth and bring Israel to, to peace. And that's when, you know, God's judgment would come and the kingdom of God would arrive. Um, but of course, Jesus didn't uh, attribute this on earth, at least. And so uh, Christians say, well, he did this in heaven. He's waiting in heaven and he will come back um, at some point, even though we're, we're still waiting today. And most of the prophecies Jesus allegedly fulfilled do not actually refer to the Messiah. So when Jesus, for, for example, when Matthew has Jesus's family take him to Egypt and then quotes uh, the verse that says, out of Egypt, I shall call my son. That passage was not originally referring to the Messiah. It's in a different context. And, and, and reference to Israel. Same with you know Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, uh, or Mark talking about a prophet arriving. All of these are in different contexts to which the New, New Testament authors then um, saw and tried to make fit. So scholars like good, Mark Goodacre would call this um, history traditionalized, or history, history scripturalized, um, that they are taking historical events and are trying to put them back onto the Old Testament to make them fit rather than Jesus fulfilling these naturally. And in the few places where these actually are fulfillments of messianic prophecy or prophecies that were considered messianic at the time. They are very contrived and, and done that. So, um, for example, the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but uh, we get two different stories in Matthew. Who, uh, Matthew has Jesus go uh, during the reign of Herod to be born in Bethlehem and then has to flee from Herod and go into Egypt, whereas Luke doesn't have the Egypt uh, story, but he does have the census of Quirinius, and that's always been controversial and generally considered anachronistic because Josephus tells us that the census happened in 6 AD, whereas both Luke and Matthew say that uh, the census happened, or that Herod died in 4 BC. So both of them want to say that Jesus was born during the time of Herod the Great, but, they also, but Luke also wants to say that Jesus was born during the census in 6 AD, so Luke has to move the census to the time of Herod the Great, which most scholars would consider an anachronism. And he's doing this specifically to get Jesus to fit so that he has an excuse to go to Bethlehem. And so if that's true, if the gospel authors have to make Jesus fulfill these prophecies. That is not very good for our priors. We would expect the Son of God, we would expect this God incarnate to actually fulfill legitimate prophecy, not have to force these fulfillments. Whereas if Jesus was some kind of failed cult leader or prophet who had radical disciples who believed he was God, it's not surprising that they would do this anachronistically and retroactively. So that is actually evidence against Jesus being God in this case. Um, another example would be... Um, and uh, one, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, uh, you know, in the other Gospels, he writes that a donkey, but in the Gospel of Matthew, um, some of the language there implies he could be writing two donkeys at the same time. And this is because uh, I believe the passage of Zechariah, which Matthew's trying to, to make Jesus fulfill, mentions both a colt and a donkey. And so it seems like a very um, uh, uh, ad hoc kind of justification for that. And so examples like these just show the Gospel authors went great pains to make Jesus fulfill prophecy which is not what we would expect if he actually did fulfill them. They would be very natural and very predictable, and they wouldn't be um, random verses in the Old Testament that have nothing to do with the Messiah. Um, another one people want to talk about is Isaiah 53 that's directed to Jesus. No, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was silent like a lamb. But you can only cherry-pick these. And of course, Jesus was not the only person crucified. 
one could point to any failed messianic leader and say, oh, look, um, they were pierced and they were trampled over and they could have died for us as well. And there are places in Isaiah 53 that don't really make sense being Jesus. For example, uh, verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Uh, now, the confusing thing is Jesus never had children, um, unless one is the Gnostic Gospels, which came later. Um, Jesus didn't have kids. He was single his whole life, nor were his, were his days prolonged in the traditional sense. He died pretty young at the age of 33. Granted, that was probably middle age back then, but still. Um, so this doesn't seem to fit very nicely with Jesus, unless one wants to take it hyper metaphorically and say that the offspring are not literal offspring. But then it gets into the question of proper exegesis and what is a uh, what was the original interpretation of such passages. So one could say that Jesus is not a good candidate for any of these prophecies, and therefore we should not get uh, excited about having him be exceptional to the rule. Um, and yeah, and this, this slide also summarizes that if you want to look at uh, Helping Jesus to a Prophecy by Richard C. Miller or James M. Robinson's work on this, where the uh, early Christians were making Jesus fulfill prophecy in this way. Another issue is that Jesus would... All right, so that's his third, uh, third um, prior probability factor before we get into that. We're going to address this. Uh, Jesus fails to fulfill messianic prophecy uh, claim that uh, Caleb gives. So the first thing by way of assessment here is, again, whenever it comes to prior probability factors, we have to ask this question, is this relevant background knowledge? So let's grant everything that, just for the sake of argument, first of all, let's grant everything that Caleb the skeptic or Caleb the atheist is saying here. Um, so, okay, Jesus didn't fill Messianic prophecy. He was a total failure. Uh, obviously, he wasn't the Messiah. Is that relevant to the hypothesis, specific hypothesis that we're evaluating? So, well, that depends on the hypothesis, right? So let's say the hypothesis is just, um, it is true that God bodily raised Jesus from the dead, given he had a um, motivating reason to do so. Well, in this case, Jesus being the Messiah would be totally irrelevant. It wouldn't really speak to the truth or falsity of the hypothesis, right? Same deal if you simplify it, just God raised Jesus from the dead um, and that sort of thing. Um, or an even simpler one, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that, you know, these are usually the statements of resurrection hypotheses that people give by Christian apologists. I don't see how messianic prophecy is directly relevant to the truth or falsity of those hypotheses per se, uh, at least not directly. Um, they don't speak to that. Um, and here's proof, right? Look, the Bible recounts there are multiple incidents of non-Jewish Messiah people being raised. Tabitha, Lazarus, Jesus himself who raised Lazarus from the dead. Neither of these people were the Messiah, nor the Jewish Messiah. So even if Jesus is not the Messiah and he failed to fulfill Messianic prophecy, it can still be, the hypothesis could still be true if it's in this limited, uh, limited hypothesis at least, right? There's no mention of Jesus needing to be the Messiah. God can obviously have a motivating reason outside of Jesus being the Messiah to, to raise someone from the dead, and this could hypothetically include Jesus. So I think uh, Caleb the atheist here needs to do a little bit more work in terms of meeting his burden of proof and explaining well, why is Jesus' supposed failure 
to fulfill Messianic prophecy and or to be the Jewish Messiah relevant to the truth or falsity of the resurrection hypothesis. Now, there is something I can, a couple ways someone might go about doing that, right? So the first, um, you could tack on into your hypothesis saying Jesus was the Messiah or something. This is Jesus, God's motivating reason for raising Jesus is to prove that he is the Jewish Messiah. Um, and likewise, you would have to assume, while there are in fact prophecies uh, in the Old Testament that prove the Messiah should raise from the dead. The second way is probably the way I would take it. So this would be, for me, this would be relevant because I would say, okay, my hypothesis is God rose Jesus bodily from the dead, bodily or not, but going with Caleb here, uh, God rose Jesus bodily from the dead uh, because he had a motivating reason for doing it. That motivating reason is he wanted to authenticate Christianity proper. So that's just the essential doctrines that need to be true. Secondary things can be false and that doesn't hurt or falsify, hurt or falsify our hypothesis. Okay, well, then you could argue, well, Jesus being the Messiah is an essential doctrine. You have to believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and therefore fulfilled Messianic prophecy. So if he didn't fulfill Messianic prophecy, then that's a falsification that he was the Jewish Messiah. That's a falsification of Christianity proper by denying one of its essential doctrines. In that case, yeah, you could say, well, this is relevant background knowledge and, and smuggle it in that way. Now, one thing just on terms of methodology, even though the, pro the proper procedure would be to treat this as a background knowledge, I myself didn't. So I, I wouldn't care, even if all this was true and I thought the atheist was correct that, oh, actually Jesus did probably fail to fulfill some messianic prophecies or something. I still wouldn't count that as background knowledge against um, the truth of my resurrection hypothesis. I would bracket it out. But what I do, and it comes out to the same thing, I would treat it as a negative evidence proper rather than prior probability. Um, or I would put that more into a negative evidence for the hypothesis that is Christianity proper true, rather than talking about the resurrection. So again, it and it, mathematically speaking, it'll all come out. Both me and Caleb uh, will come up with the same probabilities, assuming we put in the same values for this messianic prophecy factor. doesn't matter whether it's in the prior probability or whether you treat it as a, a negative evidence proper. Um, at the end of the day, I, I'm using the resurrection as proof that Christianity is true. Um, so one way or the other, even though there's a, a difference in terms of our methodologies of where we're using these prior probabilities. And I will state, technically speaking, the way Caleb is doing it is the technically correct Bayesian way to do it. Um, but practically speaking, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. And it, it all just depends on well, what's your hypothesis that you're assessing here, right? Um, and I, I've set up my procedure in such a way as this factor is totally irrelevant to what I'm proving that the resurrection of Jesus is a religion of Christianity proper authenticating event. Um, but if true, which it isn't, it will come up uh, later on when I'm assessing is Christianity true. Um, so one way or the other, this factor would be factored in if it was a successful atheistic argument, which 
I'm going to be arguing next. It's not. There are refutations to all of this, and I think successful ones that make this a failure on a balance of probabilities to prove that um, Jesus probably did not rise from the dead, um, either, you know, or that it has a low prior probability. I think it fails. But before we get to that, I wanted to get to this, that issue, mention the methodology difference, but going in the spirit of Caleb, forget, forget about that, just this Bayesian approach with just this one hypothesis about Jesus rising from the dead, great, treated as a prior probability, that's correct, uh, but you need to do a bit of work establishing how is this relevant to your specific hypothesis and what is your specific hypothesis, and Caleb the atheist just doesn't provide that here, so on that basis, I don't think it works. Now, a second point here is if it does work. Um, so let's pretend you take the route that I said because we're, our hypothesis is specifying that God's motivating reason for raising Jesus is to authenticate um, the Jewish, the, sorry, the Christianity proper religion, the essential doctrines of Christianity and or because he wants to prove Jesus is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. Um, if, you mod if you specify that either one of those or both of those are God's motivating reason for raising Jesus bodily from the dead, then this becomes relevant background knowledge and you need to uh, look into the details. However, there's a positive spin to this. And you'll notice in the show that we did with Dr. Jonathan McClatchy, because this works both ways. It, it isn't just it lowers the prior probability. So maybe on some of these factors that Caleb mentions here, some of you are kind of going, okay, I've heard both sides of the arguments. I do think some of these uh, are a failure on a balance of probabilities. This does lower the prior probability that God would raise Jesus because I, I find it, you know, yeah, the, the Old Testament prophesied the Messiah would be a conquering hero. Jesus, at least, uh, wasn't a conquering hero, and I'm skeptical of the counter response of the second coming um, and all this stuff. So let's pretend you think that's a success and you're 60% convinced. Okay, well, that would lower the probability of your hypothesis down to 40%. Um, but there's also the reverse is also true because there are messianic prophecies that prove uh, Jesus uh, would raise from the dead. Isaiah 53 that we'll be looking at in a second. And this raises the prior probability. Um, again, depending on what your hypothesis is. If, if you're saying the motivating reason is he wanted to authenticate Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, great. Factors that make it look like Jesus didn't fulfill prophecies would lower it, but factors that say the, the Jewish Messiah would in fact raise from the dead help to raise that prior probability back up. Um, given Jesus' claim to be the Jewish Messiah, this would raise our prior probability and expectation that, yeah, he, he, a Messiah like Jesus would be, ex God would be expected to raise this guy from the dead. Um, and that get again, that gets into the details of when you prove, you have to prove this, Jesus was the Messiah, or at least claimed to be the Messiah and had a reasonable expectation to be such. Um, and also prove that Isaiah 53 is in fact a prophecy because obviously Jews dispute that and that sort of thing. So yeah, I think uh, that's it in terms of the main points I wanted to raise is, look, number one, Caleb hasn't done 
his the full work of justifying this that this is relevant background knowledge he needs to provide that link or establish how it's relevant to the hypothesis the resurrection hypothesis um, and specify what, what exactly is your hypothesis um, and what is it that's linking Jesus failure as the Jewish Messiah to that the truth or falsity of that hypothesis uh, secondly, it works both ways. Perhaps there's some evidence that may lower the prior probability in this respect, but then there's also positive evidence, the likes of which Dr. Jonathan McClatchy uses, that raises the prior probability of the resurrection hypothesis, given Jesus' uh, relationship to Messianic prophecy and being the Jewish Messiah. Um, so the next thing I wanted to mention, okay, so let, let's address just a, a few of the specific claims that he makes here. It, is it actually true that Jesus did not fulfill messianic prophecy, and therefore this lowers our uh, prior probability that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and that therefore Christianity proper is true, and therefore, you know, God wouldn't want to raise Jesus from the dead uh, to authenticate his religion. So let's uh, take a look at that. All right, so uh, sorry about this. I, I had to take a bit of a break um, and I'm recording this in Zoom, which means I can't go back and re-listen to what I had recorded previously. So I know I had finished the first chunk where I gave two, two kind of critiques to what Caleb the Atheist is saying here. Um, so just to recap those. Uh, so number one is, is the fact that Jesus did not fulfill Messianic prophecy, is that relevant? to the given specific hypothesis under evaluation. If your hypothesis is just God raised Jesus from the dead or God raised Jesus from the dead, given he had a motivating reason to do so, I'm not sure why Jesus uh, failing to be the Jewish Messiah and or failing to fulfill Messianic prophecies um, or even just some Messianic prophecies is relevant. Uh, there, there needs to be some work from Caleb the Atheist to prove that this is relevant to that uh, resurrection, specific res version of the resurrection hypothesis at play. Certainly God can have other motivating reasons for raising Jesus from the dead, right? I mean, he raised Tabitha from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. They were not the Jewish Messiah. So obviously God can have ulterior motivating reasons to raise someone from the dead, and that includes someone like Jesus. Um, so I think this is kind of betraying Caleb the atheist's real Christian bias here in that he's assuming, oh, well, I know that he rose Jesus from the dead because I'm a Christian. I know Christianity is true. So that's obviously the reason he was authenticating uh, Christianity as being true, or at the very least, he was authenticating Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. I think Caleb kind of betrays himself. At one point, he says um, the fact that he doesn't fulfill these messiahs speaks to whether or not he was God or not. Where, where did the concept of Jesus being God come from all of a sudden, right? So it's, he's smuggling in this these Christian, essential Christian notions and smuggling that in and being bound or associated with whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, which I think he's right. I, I, obviously, I'm a Christian. He's absolutely correct. But at least in this video, as an atheist, you can't just assume that. You can't just assume, oh, well, the only reason God would have for raising someone is because he would want to authenticate that Christianity is true or that he was the Messiah or that Jesus was God. In some way, you have to establish why that's relevant. Um, and obviously, if you have an expanded hypothesis, if you specify in your hypothesis that the purpose God raised Jesus from the dead is because he wants 
to prove Christianity, uh, or at the very least, Christianity proper is true, okay, then you need to establish that Jesus being the Jewish Messiah and fulfilling the Messianic prophecies is in fact an essential belief. In that case, it would be relevant background knowledge. But I'm just pointing out God can have at least a priori, God can have any number of reasons for raising Jesus from the dead. It uh, doesn't have to entail that he is the Jewish Messiah or that he would fulfill Jewish messianic prophecies in any way. I mean, maybe it's a miracle of compassion on God's part. Maybe God just gave him a double chance. Maybe, maybe Satan was up there just like he was back in Job's day and he made a bet with God. I bet you can't raise that guy from the dead. And God said, oh yeah, and raised him from the dead. Uh, you know, you get what I'm saying. Obviously, those ridiculous scenarios don't, I don't believe that. But um, the, my point, I think, is made. Um, not enough here has been done to establish that this is relevant background knowledge, even if true. The second major point that I wanted to leave you guys with is, look, there's also a positive side to this. If, if this is, in fact, relevant background knowledge or information, you have people like Dr. Jonathan McGlatchey or the McGrews and uh, rightly arguing that actually this raises the prior probability that God would want to raise Jesus from the dead um, because um, he is the Messiah and he fulfilled messianic prophecy. Um, so this could, could work for or against. The, the sword cuts both ways. If you want to be an atheist and try to argue this way, um, it could be we accept um, may, maybe on some of these things, we're 60% convinced that, yeah, Jesus probably failed to fulfill Messianic prophecy. Now, the atheists are right on this front, and I'm, it's, it's not overwhelming. I've seen both of the sides of the arguments. Maybe I'm 60% convinced the atheist is right here. So that would lower your prior probability that God raised Jesus from the dead hypothesis down to 40%. But on the positive side, maybe you're convinced also by Jonathan McGlatchey's reasoning that uh, for his prior probability, increasing factors based on messianic prophecy and that Jesus was in fact the Jewish Messiah and the Messiah was prophesied to raise from the dead. Um, and maybe you're 70% convinced by that. In that case, the 70% would be an overriding probability. When you plug the 40% and 70% into Bayes' theorem, Overall, the prior probability would actually be 60%. Um, so this messianic prophecy consideration would actually raise from the default 50% overall up to 60, up to 60%, and it would raise that prior probability. So you have to be aware of overriding probabilities and the fact that there are two sides to this, that there could be a positive case based on prior probability for messianic prophecy in addition to just the negative case that this atheist is giving you. You can't engage in selection bias or cherry picking and just talk about the messianic prophecies that support your case or that the, the aspects of this factor that support what the atheists want to hear. Uh, you have to look at the total case, all the evidence, and then make that overall judgment. And it may be on the positive side, we have overriding prior probability aspects to messianic prophecy that actually means that uh, the total will increase the overall prior probability. So that's it I, in terms of my summarizing. Um, the third point I want to get to that I haven't covered yet, so this will be new for you guys. Um, okay, well, is this true? Has the atheist proven that these uh, factors do, the, that Jesus failed to fill messianic prophecy um, in, in the ways specified? Uh, well, no, I think this is an utter failure. Um, I don't think that 
uh, atheists or Jews or anti-missionaries have been able to prove on a balance of probabilities. It's, it's less than 50% to my mind that uh, any of these things are true in terms of Jesus' failure to fulfill Messianic prophecy. So let's just look at a few of these in turn here. And to do that, I'm not going to waste a lot of time. I'll just play a couple clips from the best world's expert on addressing these types of issues, Dr. Michael L. Brown. Um, so yeah, let's get into that next. Okay, so, okay, so I'm going to deal with um, at least three to four of these claims that he makes, right? So the first claim that he has here is, look, Jesus didn't fulfill the clear messianic prophecies that according to the rabbinic Jews, the biased rabbinic Jews who have a false religion of rabbinic Judaism. They don't follow biblical Judaism, which is what Christians follow. Um, but anyways, so this Caleb the atheist says, well, the Messiah, for example, should have been seen as a conquering hero who would defeat Israel's oppressors and bring world peace to the land. Well, there's no world peace. Israel's oppressors won against Israel. They conquered and destroyed Israel in the second temple and all of that. Um, so yeah, so, so here's a little clip of Dr. Michael Brown uh, addressing this issue. Why isn't there world peace if Jesus is the Messiah? Let, let's, let's start to get in deeper now. Let's start to look at the historical objections, beginning with this one. Jesus is really the Messiah. Why isn't there peace on earth? This would seem to be a very powerful objection. After all, the, the messianic picture of Isaiah 11 the wolf lying down with the lamb and, and, and the lion eating, eating straw like an ox and the little child eating them and, and no war, no hurt, no pain on God's holy mountain. Isaiah 2, the nation streaming to the God of Israel in Jerusalem and, and beating their swords into plowshares. The vision repeated Micah, the fourth chapter. Surely, surely. This is the one thing we know about the Messiah. You don't have to believe in him. You don't have to wonder about him. You will know that you know that it's him because it's him. Because there's peace. Because there's no more war. You don't have to speculate. Now, what's interesting is that traditional Judaism teaches that there's a potential Messiah in every generation. Not every Jew believes. That's not every religious Jew believes. But there's a traditional Jewish teaching. And, and certainly... Traditional Judaism as a whole believes that the Messiah will be recognized over a period of time. The Messiah will be recognized over a period of time. Meaning, why, why did that Jewish leader? I wonder. I mean, he's teaching Torah and there's awakening among masses of Jews and suddenly millions of Jews are coming back to Torah and the God of Israel through him. And, and, and you know, he's he, he, he's fighting the wars of the Lord. He's, he's leading Israel in, in courageous war against their enemies, and they're, they're winning. Could he be the Messiah? And well, he, he's rebuilding the temple, and he's regathering the exiles. Well, if he does all these things and establishes peace on the earth, then you say, surely he's the Messiah. In other words, it's not just going to happen one day, as some counter-missionary said, that you look out the window and say, oh, Messiah's come. No, there will be a process and a recognition. The problem is that traditional Judaism doesn't understand the full biblical process. Let me, let me explain. Traditional Judaism says we'll know who the Messiah is when he gathers the exiles, rebuilds the temple, brings the Jewish people into the knowledge of, of God and back to Torah observance, fights the wars of the Lord, 
ends war and suffering on the earth, then we'll know he's the Messiah. I would put it like this. Traditional Judaism believes in points six through 10. It doesn't recognize points one through five. What traditional Judaism says is the first act, the only act is actually the second act. First, the Messiah had to come within a specified period of time. The Messiah had to come and make atonement for the sins of the world and function as a priestly king. Once he had done this, then his message would be taken by Jewish people <laughs> around the world. And even though his own people would reject him, he would become a light to the nations after which his own people Israel would receive him. When he returns, he will make an end of war and he will establish the rest of those promises. He will bring them to pass. You say, well, that's your theology. That's your belief. Where is it in the Bible? Oh, glad you asked. All right. So you, you get the point, right? This is, there are two comings. Christians teach there are two phases to Messiah's mission. Um, there, if you have a total of 10 prophecies, the first coming was fulfillment of the first five prophecies. At his second coming, he, including world peace and defeating all of evil and the enemies and being a warrior king, that's going to be at the second coming. In the first coming, he was the high priest. He made it uh, a sacrifice and atone for our sins, riding lowly on a donkey. At the second coming, he's going to come as Daniel 9 as Daniel 7 says, in, in the clouds of heaven as the son of man and in glory and conquering all of evil and destroying it and wiping it out for all time. Um, so this is the mistake that Jews are making here. It's a total failure. We have absolutely an equally probable, if not more probable explanation that Christianity is true and Jesus is the Messiah, just coming in two phases. And all Jews recognize this, right? Back in Jesus' day, they had they recognized there was two phases to the Messiah, but instead of two phases, they said, oh, well, there's two different messiahs. There's a Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering Messiah. He'll fulfill those stuff. And then there's Messiah ben David, who will be the conquering hero. They got it wrong. There's only one Jewish Messiah. That's what the Bible teaches. But there's two phases. There isn't two messiahs with two different missions. Um, so this, is, this objection from Caleb the atheist is just not really engaging with the scholarship and the detail of the nuance of the messianic prophecies, I feel. Um, what modern, he's basing it off what modern day rabbinic Jews, rabbinic Jews don't follow the Bible. They aren't biblical Jews. Um, they follow man-made traditions made centuries after the fact over and against what the actual Bible prophesies and says. And because of that, they fundamentally screwed up. They have to, as Michael Brown said, they have to ignore the first five prophecies, the first phase of Jesus' mission during his first coming, and just concentrate on the six and say, well, I haven't seen the fulfillment of the six. Yeah, but you've seen the fulfillment of the five, and only Jesus fulfills those. Um, I made a great circumstantial argument. At least I started it. I haven't completed it, but it's, it's on my SNS, on my Real Seekers website. If you search for messianic prophecies, um, I made a circumstantial argument where it's there's this extraordinary circumstance where it's only Jesus or bust. If Jesus isn't the Jewish Messiah, nobody is. And you can find that um, right here, uh, Messianic Prophecies, a New Circumstantial Argument. Um, and it's a four-part series. 
again, I don't finish or complete the argument. So I, it, it's not a full-fledged religion, G belief authenticating event, but I start, I lay the foundation for it. So check that out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny there. And there's a, another video that I want to play with Michael Brown here. By the way, all these videos from Michael Brown, this is a great resource, one of the best, The Real Messiah, where he goes over his answering Jewish objections to Jesus, provides all of these different types of objections and video, and he has his books if you want more detail, but this is just an amazing website. So I uh, just want to play this, this little clip. So this is kind of the same objection, but it's saying Jesus never fulfills the provable messianic prophecies. So that's kind of the same objection. What is Michael Brown saying this one minute clip. It's commonly said that Jesus fulfilled none of the provable prophecies. Okay, let's say he was born in Bethlehem. Fine, prove that he was born there, number one. And even if he was, so what's so miraculous about that? Plenty of kids were born in Bethlehem. Well, he died. Well, plenty of people died. He rose from the dead. Well, you can't prove it. See, all the, all the prophecies you point to are not provable. Some say Jesus fulfilled none of the messianic prophecies, meaning if it's a legitimate messianic prophecy, he didn't fulfill it. Others argue he fulfilled none of the provable prophecies. So, of course, my response to that is, so is, how about bringing the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth? That's not everybody who does that. How about being the Jew who has brought more people into the knowledge of the God of Israel than any Jew who's ever lived? Isn't that somewhat provable? How, how about doing all of these things before the second temple was destroyed? You have no other candidate. How about God's word confirmed with signs and wonders and, and miracles? These, these things are provable and were part of the work of the Messiah and continues in his ongoing work. So yeah, I think that's, whoops, I think that's uh, kind of telling there in terms of this first objection that uh, Caleb the Atheist raises. Um, let's look at another one. So he mentioned, he mentions um, there is a problem in terms of the, the New Testament uh, makes up stuff, um, you know, it, it, it scripturizes history or takes Old Testament passages out of context and messianic prophecies out of context to fit the life of Jesus uh, and or uh, makes up events about Jesus in order to fit what they think is messianic prophecies. Um, we have a, counter, a good counter response to that. Here's Michael Brown on that issue. General illusion. And you can show solidly that more than 10% of the New Testament text. Oops. The book of Revelation contained So let's start with this accusation that the New Testament misquotes, misinterprets the Old Testament times it manufactures verses to suit its purposes. Here's the answer. No truth whatsoever to this claim. First, remember that the New Testament authors were Jews with the probable exception of Luke. And they were sometimes writing to Jewish readers who knew their scriptures well. So to manufacture, misquote, or misinterpret verses from the Tanakh would be absolutely self-defeating. You see, they didn't just, in 30 seconds, just write down Gospel of Matthew, write down, you know. This was the process, uh, the, the, the project of, of years of work, the compilation, the meditation, the checking sources and putting things together. So, so it's not just, hey, let's just trick everybody. 
Plus, they wanted people to study. They wanted people to dig. They wanted people to go further. So to manufacture a verse and rip it completely out of context, it wouldn't take long for someone to figure out. So yeah, well, we did figure out. That's why we rejected it. That's a little bit of a superficial approach for obvious reasons. Fact is, these authors spent much time meditating on the Tanakh. You'd be amazed to see just how insightful their quotations and interpretations are, not to mention how much they're in keeping with the ancient Jewish methods of scriptural hermeneutics. Now, just some stats for you, all right? The uh, New Testament is roughly 8,000 verses. Some scholars claim that almost one in three, about 2,500 out of 8,000, contain an Old Testament quote or a general allusion. And you can show solidly that more than 10% of the New Testament text is made up of citation or direct allusions to the Old Testament. You can show solidly more than 10%, a direct quotation, citing the Hebrew scriptures to make a point, more than 10%. The book of Revelation contains 404 verses. Uh, as many as 331 of those verses are drawn from the imagery of the Hebrew scriptures. It only quotes one verse directly. That's from Psalm 2. And yet, over 300 verses, perhaps as many as 331 out of 404, are taken from imagery of the Hebrew scriptures. I, I just want you to understand how, how deeply enmeshed this is. A New Testament and Judaic scholar, uh, literature scholar Craig Evans summarized the situation well. The theology of the New Testament is fundamentally indebted to and a reflection of major Old Testament the themes, images, and languages. There is simply no significant element in New Testament theology that is not in some way a development of a tradition or theology expressed in the sacred writings that eventually came to be what Christians call the Old Testament, Jews call it Tanakh, and scholars call the Hebrew Bible. All right, so, so that kind of proves the point. This is just not true, right? And, I'm sure Caleb the Christian, Caleb as himself, um, again, playing devil's advocate, he's doing the best he can, but these objections really are just not um, persuasive when you look into the details beyond just a superficial level and you get into the details, they don't stand up to scrutiny in my opinion, or at the very least, hey, if you're an atheist, there's another side here that's credible and needs to be properly considered. Um, and I think that this makes it the case that you can't, remember the atheist has the burden of proof here. They are claiming to know that the prior probability is low, less than 50% that God raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because Christians misquote the Old Testament. Okay, prove it. We're, we're at least coming up with an undercutting and I would say rebutting the feeder. We actually have the facts, biblical scholars are on our side and they're saying, no, this is not what New Testaments do. Anti-missionary Jews and atheists on the internet are wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. They're in error. Um, so yeah, this is a failure as an argument. It's less than 50% proven. And the atheist hasn't met his burden of proof. Caleb, the atheist is just, and again, I've got it. I know what he's doing for the purposes of his show, but I'm, I'm just saying here, it's just a claim that there's no, detailed evidence that this is actually true. You need to look into the other side. All right, so the last uh, objection based on Messianic prophecy that I want to address, this is the most important one because this is Isaiah 53. 
Um, and remember I mentioned there's a positive and a negative case. Dr. Jonathan McClatchy would use Isaiah 53 to prove that a priori, it's very probable that God would want to raise Jesus from the dead as the Messiah, because this proves that God would raise the Messiah from the dead for the purpose of atoning for people's sins, which is exactly what Jesus taught. Um, so this is actually a prior probability increaser messianic prophecy consideration as well. Um, but obviously Caleb the atheist is focusing on a particular aspect here, namely that he shall see his offspring. Ah, he'll have kitties. Jesus did not have kitties. Therefore, he's a fake messiah. He failed to fulfill messianic prophecy. Um, now, one thing I just want to say here, there's a little bit of hypocrisy or inconsistency in Caleb the atheist. And I, I'm making sure to call him Caleb the atheist because I know this isn't, Caleb himself is smarter than this, but he's doing his best to reason like a, an atheist or a skeptic, coming up with the best he can. And this is true to life, right? This is and not just atheists, but anti-missionary Jews like Rabbi Tobias Singer, they come up with stuff like this. Now, one thing I want to say here is, in the first place, you're a little bit of a hypocrite, uh, Caleb the atheist, because why do we care about this prophecy at all? Um, number one, let's pretend Jesus didn't fulfill this because it's literally saying he would have kids. Uh, he shall see his offspring and Jesus didn't have biological offspring. Let's just assume that for the sake of argument. Who cares? What does that have to do with Jesus or the Messiah, right? Because all of your objections so far have just been a very superficial acceptance of what rabbinical Jews or anti-missionaries who hate Christians and want to stop people from believing in Jesus, that's their stated goal. They don't care about evangelizing or mission, being missionaries to help spread the Jewish faith. Um, they're very evil. They just don't want people believing in Christianity, and that's their goal to attack Jesus and Christianity and keep the Jews worshiping their rabbis and believing in Judaism and stuff like that. Uh, yes, I know I'm being unfair, but uh, a little bit of humor. But anyways, the point is they're, they're, they're anti-missionaries. Their point is just to counter what Christian missionaries teach about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. And this is one of the things they come up with. And Caleb's just kind of been very superficial as an atheist and just mindlessly asserting what they say without getting into any of the nuance or showing both sides of the argument. He's just saying, you know, it's almost like, well, I heard Rabbi Tobias Singer said that said this, so it must be true. But yet here, uh, Caleb the atheist kind of sh shines through with another little bit of Christian bias um, because he's assuming what the Christians think. He's assuming this is, in fact, a messianic prophecy. When in fact, Rabbi Tobias Singer would say, no, this is about the nation of Israel, or this is perhaps about the remnant within Israel, the righteous remnant, a group of people. This isn't a messianic prophecy at all. So who cares if Jesus fulfilled this prophecy or not by having kids? It doesn't matter. It doesn't apply to the Messiah. It doesn't, therefore, it doesn't apply to Jesus. And it has no bearing on the prior probability of our, the truth or falsity of our resurrection hypothesis about God raising Jesus from the dead for the purpose of authenticating that Jesus was the Messiah and or authenticating the Christian religion. Um, just because a bunch of Christians have falsely said this is a messianic prophecy, who cares, right? So I think some more work needs to be done here. Well, what, even if Jesus does fail this, what's the point? How, 
are you assuming like Christians say that this is in fact a messianic prophecy? Why are you inconsistent? Why do you assume whatever their Jewish rabbis say on a superficial level in terms of other messianic prophecies, but here you want to take the Christian interpretation of this messianic prophecy as being proper and therefore counting against Jesus. Um, I think that's a bit of a double standard. There's an inconsistency there arguing as an atheist on this front and maybe address that. That's an interesting point. But anyways, let's let's take this at face value because we can prove through Dr. Michael Brown and other uh, world's experts in biblical scholarship of the Old Testament that this is in fact a messianic prophecy. The rabbis are wrong. So how do we respond to this then? Jesus didn't have kitties. This verse says that he's going to see his kitties and prolong his days. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. So here's my last little clip with Dr. Michael, Michael Brown addressing this. Subjections are so weak, even though sincere, that they show how powerful the passage is on its own. Uh, lastly, we're told Isaiah 53 cannot refer to Yeshua because it says the servant of the Lord would see seed. You're Ezra. You will see seed. And I was told in one debate that that expression, see seed in the Bible, always means physical progeny. Well, well actually, the expression see seed only occurs there. One Jewish translation suggests that the word zera actually should be understood as zeroah, arm, you know, see the arm of the Lord, then the vindication of the Lord. But let's just say we use the Hebrew text as we have it. And, and zera, seed, um, what does it mean? He will see seed. Well, does it mean that he will, after his death and resurrection, now have children? Is that what it means? Could be. That could be a meaning. But zera can be used metaphorically in terms of a spiritual seed, seed of serpents, seed of evildoers. It can be used metaphorically. So it, it could be speaking of, of spiritual offspring in the future. It, it also could mean he will see future generations of his people. Like it says at the end of Psalm 22, that, that a seed will serve a future generation. It could just mean that he will see the future results of his labor, he will see future disciples, future seed of Jewish people, or perhaps Jews and Gentiles following the God of Israel through his labor. It does not mean that he had children. It does not have to mean that. The fact is, all these different objections thrown out at this, it's almost like someone microanalyzing the Mona Lisa and saying it's really not a masterpiece. There's really not much to it. Why have people been enthralled by it through the century? Or, or maybe here's a, a wholesome model with a beautiful face and a beautiful smile, and she's wearing this this just lovely, modest summer dress, and on the front of a, a modest magazine, trying to paint a picture that's as modest and clean as could be. And she's she's vibrant, and you, you look at that and say, "Wow, she just looks so wholesome!" And what a beautiful smile! What a beautiful woman! Well, you know, if you break that down, we did a computer analysis and we see that the, the lip is not perfectly even. Now, actually, you'll see he's like a little crease in them. They have Photoshop, that little, and, you know, the hair, it, that's not an install. So you can critique it, but she looks very beautiful. Well, we look at Isaiah 53, you can try to come at it with these different objections. But when you step back and see the power of it, you think, wow, it, it sounds as if someone wrote it. This has often been said at the foot of 
the cross. Now, let, let me get into this question, though, of suffering. Does Judaism know of a suffering? All right, so, so that's the little bit. The, the point here is that there are equally plausible or probable or even more probable interpretations of this verse that don't talk about biological offspring. Therefore, Jesus didn't fail to fulfill this messianic prophecy. Um, again, think about it. Remember, Jews, the people that I think Caleb the atheist or most atheists, when they make these types of arguments, rely upon, they assume, oh, whatever Rabbi Tobias Singer says must be true because he, these are Jews and stuff like that. Um, and their scriptures, they know better than Christians and atheists and all that. Um, but once again, that's, well, that proves the Christian is right then. This is probably not talking about biological offspring because that's not how Jews interpret this verse, right? They don't believe it's a messianic prophecy. They say it's about the nation of Israel and or a righteous remnant within Israel. But obviously offspring is not literal. It's metaphorical in that, in that sense then. It's not meant to be taken as a literal uh, biological offspring of an individual person. Um, so yeah, that, obviously the, the way that Jews, their false non-Messianic interpretation of this verse backs up Christians on this specific point that it's not talking about literal biological offspring. So therefore it's more probable than not that Jesus did fulfill this aspect of this verse as opposed to... Um, what Caleb's saying here. He just can't prove his case. And even worst case scenario, um, there are equally likely interpretations that don't see this as biological little literal offspring. Um, Caleb just gives us nothing to think. Um, Caleb the atheist gives us nothing to prove that this does refer to biological offspring here, other than just saying, well, it sounds it. it we just have to assume that. And if you say no, then you're making things up to avoid the problem. No, actually we're doing proper exegesis as opposed to eisegesis here, which is what the atheists do. So yeah, uh, that's it uh, in terms of my assessment of this factor. So next we'll move on to the next factor, uh, the next and last prior probability factor that Caleb wants us to evaluate. All right, so now we're going to move on to the last portion of the of Caleb the atheist's prior, uh, case against the prior probability or case for the low prior probability of the resurrection hypothesis that God would raise Jesus bodily from the dead for given he had a motivating reason to do so. Presumably that reason is to authenticate Christianity or to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah. I don't know exactly what Caleb the atheist's hypothesis is, but if it's just God raised Jesus from the dead, from bodily from the dead, given he had a motivating reason to do so. Let's just assume minimally that's it. Okay, so here's his next factor here. Jesus is not a good moral teacher. Another issue is that Jesus was not really a good moral teacher. He may have been better for his time, um, but uh, many skeptics will say that, you know, if, God, if Jesus was God incarnate, was really sinless, we would expect really... Um, uh, surprising teachings, teachings that were revolutionary for the time, and we would expect no imperfections. But Jesus advocated or at least implied a lot of things that we would today not consider morally uh, 
permissible in the same sense. So Jesus did not explicitly condemn slavery, for example. Um, granted, it's hard to see verses where he explicitly states that you should own slaves or do that. But Jesus mentions plenty of parables with slaves and never seems in all of his ministry to be concerned about, yes, you should not own other people. Um, Jesus also condemned divorce in most cases, um, with the exceptions of sexual morality or abuse. And this is problematic because, uh, especially in Jesus' day, most arranged, most marriages were arranged. And so people weren't staying with their spouses because they had the free choice to. They were doing it because they were forced to. So Jesus is basically saying that you should stay in these relationships that you may or may not agree with. And the only exception is if you are being you know, physically harmed. Whereas people today get married for various reasons. And some, sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes you're not compatible with the person sexually or emotionally for whatever reasons. And so divorce is meant to be a way to uh, to leave failing marriages. And Jesus is basically saying, no, you can't do that. Um, once you once you get involved, you can't leave, you know, especially in time where where people didn't even truly do these in the first place often. So um, that is that is problematic and uh, is not necessarily intuitive. And it also shows that, you know, Christians don't really have any better rates with divorce than non-Christians do. Christians get divorced at roughly the same estimates. Which is surprising if, if Christians are supposed to be changed and actually be different and, uh, and and have their hearts trained with Jesus, you think they would follow his commands a little bit better. Um, but I digress. One could also do the famous incidents of Jesus cleansing the temple where he fastens a cord and uh, uses it to make the whipping sound. Whether he actually whips people is not explicitly stated, but perhaps it's implied. And of course, he turns over tables and destroys other people's private property which today would get him, I mean, he would be arrested even back then, but today that would certainly be a crime to destroy the private property of someone else, um, given, you know, Lockean uh, property rights and, and metaphors like that. Um, and of course, Jesus encouraged people to give up their familial ties and money in order to join him. He says, sell all of your things and join me. Um, you know, hate your father and mother and love me more. Don't worry about burying your father, come join me. So um, this is something that we do see in cult leaders, this idea of, um, of shunning people, especially in Jehovah's Witness camps, that you should leave and then abandon your family who doesn't agree with the cause and follow me. And that can often be a very dangerous avenue to go down. And of course, Jesus encouraged that hygiene in Mark 7. He, when the disciples um, don't wash their hands and the Pharisees get on them, and Jesus says, no, worry about the cleanliness of your soul and not what's on the outside. And while the spiritual message is clear here, um, the issue is, is that this was before germ theory was discovered. And so people by, you know, hundreds uh, by the hundreds were dying uh, like hundreds you know a, a day um but certainly uh, disease was a big deal back then especially they didn't know how proper hygiene worked they didn't know germs existed and so for jesus to say no don't worry about washing your hands um even if he meant it in a metaphorical sense could still set a bad precedent um especially since people were dying and getting sick and having that good hygiene would save lives um but jesus encouraging this uh, makes sense if he's just a human with with different beliefs and is doing this and doesn't know about germs but it's very strange if he's about incarnate and would be expected to want the best for people in this sense and of course jesus the biggest crux to, to him is that he uh according to many scholars like Gail allison and others uh may have mistakenly thought that the end times was near now this is a very extensive topic that i don't have time to get into but often verses people throw out are during the olive discourse and other places where Jesus seems to imply that he thinks that the end of the world is going to happen in his day, which of course it did not. And so later Christians sometimes uh, try to separate the fall of Jerusalem from the second coming and uh, and do this. And we even see this with Jehovah's Witnesses when they predicted the end of the world would happen in 1914, and it didn't. And they said, well, no, Jesus came spiritually. They had to go back and reinterpret this. And you see even a little bit of reinterpretation in, in Luke and other places. 
from what Mark originally says. So Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some people who are standing here right now was referring to the people who were with him at the time. This generation will not pass until all these things have taken place. You will not have finished gaping through the towns, right? That's gaping going through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So all these things imply a very um, imminent coming, which Jesus may have thought. Now, granted, Jesus said he didn't know when the hour would be, but that's a very strange detail for someone who is God incarnate and knowing it. But it's not surprising for a failed apocalyptic prophet who had a cult following who people may have misinterpreted and deified later on. That's what we would predict. So all of this is meant to, to look at the priors and to say that, no, Jesus is not a good candidate. If we're going to pick someone to be God incarnate for someone to perform a miracle through, um, probably shouldn't start here. And of course, one could point to plenty of other places and the epistles where um, it seems like early Christians were expecting this as well. All right. All right. Let's, uh, so, you know, putting that aside. Putting all right. Perfect. So that's it in terms of his case, case on based on prior probabilities. Um, so what am I going to say about the these last couple of uh, issues here? So in the first place, so Jesus was not a good moral teacher. He screwed up. He made mistakes. He taught immoral uh, commands and, and doctrines and teachings, according to Caleb the Atheist. Um, not only that, he was a false prophet, as we saw in the, the other part where he predicts the end of the world would come soon. Uh, 2,000 years uh, on, we're still waiting. And, you know, he gives this generation will not pass until all things take place. Well, that generation that Jesus was spoken to, they passed. So he's a false prophet and an immoral teacher. So the first thing, obviously, to ask again, are these relevant? How are these relevant? What exactly is Caleb the atheist? What is the resurrection hypothesis that he's evaluating here? And is this, in fact, provably relevant? Uh, again, Caleb the atheist hasn't done anything to prove. Who cares if he was a good teacher or not? Who cares if he was a false prophet or not? None of that speaks to the fact as to whether God would raise Jesus from the dead. Um, given he had a motivating reason to do so, and he could have could have had any number of motivating reasons to do so. Um, obviously, if you're same deals last time, you're assuming the Christianity. Oh well, it was done for the reason of authenticating Christianity or Christianity proper. Well, what is Christianity proper? Obviously, Jesus is said to be God. He's divine. He has the divine nature, so he would have to be a good moral teacher. That's part of it, right? That's essential. You have to repent from your sins in order to repent from your sins and not repeat them and obey them. You have to know what is good, and you're looking to Jesus' moral teaching. So I think that you can prove that that's an essential teaching. Um, also, Jesus would have to be a, a true prophet, meaning what he taught was true and from God, especially when he predicts the future, because we have Deuteronomy saying anyone who's a false prophet dismiss them or kill them if they say anything in the future will happen and it doesn't. They're a false prophet, they're not from God. And that speaks to the truth or authentication of Christianity proper. Um, so yeah, I think you can make the case that these are relevant background knowledges and or it, based on my methodology, I would count them as negative evidences if they succeed. And that could potentially lower the probability that uh, Jesus rose from the dead for that purpose. God rose Jesus from the dead for that purpose uh, and or the truth of Christianity proper um something like that so it comes down to well do these factors actually work and, and once again I, I get it caleb is um i mean it's a one-hour video he's got like 16 minutes to go 
through the prior probability is just kind of listing off factors that people could raise. And there's obviously a lot of depth behind it that Caleb personally is aware of. He's noting Hector Avalos and biblical scholars and, and some scholarship behind these surface level claims that he's giving. And he can't do that in the show. Obviously, if he doesn't give those details, I can't review it. I can only review what's in the video. Um, but yeah, he's right. Look at both sides and potentially on the surface, these seem like relevant points, but there are comebacks to this, right? So in the first place, Jesus did not condemn slavery. Okay, Caleb the atheist, have you proven that the failure to condemn slavery means that Jesus is not a good teacher, moral teacher? I think it proves he is a good moral teacher. It would have been outright evil, satanic, and immoral to condemn slavery at that time and place. He would have been condemning more souls to hell had he done that. They would have more people would have freely chosen to go to hell if he had done that. Um, can I prove that that's the case? No, that's what I believe. But I'm not the one making the claim. You are. I'm just providing an undercutting defeater. So I would say, how do you know that Jesus not condemning slavery right there and then wasn't the right thing to do for a greater good, like saving more free-willed creatured souls in the future? Um, can you? How do you evaluate that? How many souls are saved in this world versus another world where Jesus did condemn slavery? You can't answer that and prove your case. You have no right to make this claim that Jesus' failure to conde outright condemn slavery was immoral and proves he's an immoral teacher. Um, so I think that's kind of very assumptive on your part. And we as human beings don't have the capacity to make any kind of warranted claims on this front. Um, also, it's clear that Jesus did condemn slavery indirectly, as did Paul. Yes, they recognized that, look, we're trying to save souls here. So we have to work within the fallen world and the structures that exist. And it would be outright wrong. Our masters would fall apart. The economy would fall apart, thereby killing everybody, killing millions. The, the world couldn't work. People wouldn't be able to get food. Um, if they didn't have slavery at that time, it would be irresponsible and immoral to just say, I hereby end slavery. It's done. Um, that would have been foolish, impractical, and downright immoral. People, more people would have died and suffered if he'd given such a stupid, immoral, evil command as to condemn slavery outright. But obviously there's hints in the Bible. It's, there's hints in the Bible that God and Jesus don't like slavery. They say that's not the ideal. That's not the way it should be. And I can free you from that. Once I take care of the evil of this world, slavery will be gone. Everyone should be free. Everyone's equal. Uh, there's no, you know, no master, no slave, female, male. All are equal under God in, in God's new kingdom that he's bringing about. But it takes time. He has to work. We have to work in this wretched fallen world with the evil structures that they have and institutions that they have and reform it, redeem it from within type deal uh, before Jesus comes at the second coming and establishes his kingdom once and for all. Secondly, Jesus condemned divorce in most cases. Um, so obviously, yeah, I, I would just say, what's the problem here? Uh, that's good. Marriage is good between a man and a woman. There's a spiritual connection when they're Christians. Remember, this is a command for Christians, not for everybody. If you're not a Christian, go ahead and get divorced because of the hardness of your heart. Jesus, this, the same amount of damage won't happen from you guys. You guys are free to do what you want. 
sin in whatever way you want to and or there's not the same uh, damage that's caused. Whereas two believing true Christians getting divorced causes a tremendous spiritual damage. Um, but it's, it's not as simple as uh, good old Caleb, the atheist, wants to make it seem here in terms of divorce. There are clearly exceptions. So here's Dr. Craig Keener, one of the world's experts as a biblical scholar, probably one of the smartest human beings on the planet when it comes to what the New Testament says. Here's him speaking about this issue. It's about uh, remarriage being adultery. Talking about faithfulness to your, to your marriage. But the very context of that includes some hyperbole. For example, in chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman to desire her sexually has committed adultery with her in his heart. And I usually tell my students, I, I know that none of you have done this, because if you had, I'm sure you would have followed the, the remedy that's specifically stated for this in the text. In, in the next few verses, it goes on to say that if you have a problem with this, then you should rip your eye out. And since my students normally have both of their eyes, I understand that they probably never committed this. No, we understand that this is hyperbole. It's a graphic way of driving home the point. And Jesus drives home the point in a graphic way in this case also. In John chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus doesn't say to the woman at the well, you were married once and you've been living with five men since then. He says, you've been married five times and you're not married to the person with whom you're living now. Now, of course, we can say, well, he didn't mean that literally. Well, we can say that, but in one case or the other, he doesn't mean it literally. You can't take both sayings completely literally. We have to decide which one is meant completely literally. In Matthew 5.32 and 19.9, Jesus makes an exception for the innocent party. If, if the um, wife has been committing adultery with someone, then the man is, is free. Now, some people say, well, the word there isn't, uh, doesn't specifically mean adultery, uh, and they try to make it more specific than adultery. But in fact, the Greek term that's used there is broader than adultery, and there's nothing in the context that limits it to something narrower than adultery. So for, for the cause of the other person breaking the covenant uh, is permitted. But if the innocent party is no longer married to the guilty party, how pray tell can the guilty party still be married to the innocent party? That would suggest to us that this is hyperbole, that, that um, marriage is not something we should dissolve, but it doesn't mean that it's something that's ontologically impossible to dissolve. So there, so there, uh, there's that. And Caleb also, Caleb the atheist, also brings up this specific issue about uh, you know, hus husbands or females, as we see with that wretch Amber Heard uh, and the abuse she did on, on Johnny Depp and stuff, using physical violence. Oh, well, you can't get divorced for anything other than sexual immorality, right? Well, let's see what Craig Keener answers to something like physical abuse. I just want to know, is divorce a sin? <laughs> yeah, divorce is a sin, but the sin is breaking the marriage. So, like in the, uh, during the slavery era in the U.S., if if a slaveholder breaks up a marriage, maybe it wasn't a marriage in the U.S. law because they weren't allowed to in some cases, but the slaveholder breaks up the marriage, 
the divorce is a sin, but it's not the sin of either of the slaves. It's it's the slaveholder who's responsible for that. And if if a husband is is beating his wife, or if the wife is beating her husband, that's not uh, that's not the the fault of the person who's being beaten. It's common to internalize that. I mean, as the person who is being abused, it's common to uh, feel like, what did I do wrong? But um, God is near the lowly and the broken. He's on the side of the oppressed. He's not on the side of the oppressor. Um, so, yeah, God, uh, yeah, somebody is responsible for breaking up a marriage. There's always somebody. Well, I mean, well, I guess I could imagine something where um, somebody went off to war okay so the the point here that i wanted you to get across in these two craig keener videos here uh caleb the atheist <laughs> um is uh, look god it's about god jesus was using hyperbole in some of these cases obviously the main point here is that divorce is bad um we want to resolve our marriages and preserve that union no matter what even if sexual immorality is going on if it's possible to resolve that and to prevent that sin from carrying on, you should try to do it. Um, but there's a clear case of exceptions to this where the marriage is dissolved and this is prescribed, even though it sounds like it's an absolute command. No, Jesus has inherent implied exceptions. And we find this out in Paul and stuff like that. If they are committing adultery, you can divorce them. You're free. Same deal. If there's physical abuse, you can separate from them or divorce them. And what Craig Keener is saying here is that it's the fault of the person who breaks the marriage covenant between the two people, right? We make a covenant between two people um, and then have that spiritual bond in marriage and become one, one flesh. The person who breaks that by physical beating and or immorality of, you know, sexual immorality or something like that, defiling the marriage bed, that's on them. God bring, blames the oppressor not the oppressed. The oppressed is free to divorce and then get remarried um, in those special cases. Now, obviously, the Bible is, is very prescribing very narrow consequences because all divorce is a sin. It's not good. God just has to permit it because of the hardness of our hearts or because some people sin or because you're married to an unbeliever, not a true Christian or something like that. So it's a non-ideal situation. And God recognizes that there are certain exceptions, um, and those exceptions are very limited. We have to remind ourselves in the Bible, you can't just get divorced, irreconcilable differences. What is that? Or, oh, I, I wanted to watch the, I wanted to watch um, America's Got Talent, and my wife wanted to watch the, the stupid show Sex in the City or something like that, so I got a divorce her because of that. No, that's ridiculous, right? You have to have justified grounds. But there are justified exceptions or exemptions where a divorce is warranted. In the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus and Paul, uh, the inspired apostles, they recognize uh, that there are such. So I, I think that this is just a total failure as a, an argument trying to say Jesus was immoral. Uh, if anything, it shows how moral he was compared to our corrupt society now that just get you get divorced for anything. Oh, you you bought me a red sweater. I'm divorcing you. Pathetic. It, 
It has no respect for the sacred bond of marriage and relationship and the commitment that you both make to, to each other. Um, and, you know, the damage that you're doing to each other when you just callously break that off for no good reason or justified reason at all, uh, especially if you have kids. I mean, how that the family unit being broken up, we're seeing the, uh, the problem with divorce in this society and civilization that we have today. Um, you know, leftists, oh, give us our freedom. Look what you've done with it. You've destroyed Western civilization. We're, we're in, I don't know, we're living in a hellhole today, I think. Um, because we've broken up the nuclear family unit and we don't value that the proper family structure as we used to. Um, and yeah, it's destroying stuff. So yeah, this proves Jesus is a good moral teacher. If, if he had said divorce, yeah, go for it, dudes, do whatever you want to do. Then I'd be like, that's an immoral teacher. That is someone who I can't respect. That's a false God, false teacher. He's not, he's not, a, he's not, that counts against it. So yeah, the opposite is true here. Um, all right. Um, what about this issue? Jesus whipping people in the temple. That's so mean. Uh, he fastened a cord and, you know, turned the tables in the temple. Um, geez, how, how uh, terrible can you get? Well, here's a biblical scholar, Dr. Craig Evans, talking about this. Here and why Jesus would do something like that. Well, first of all, you need to know that when he went into the temple, he's in the temple precincts. And the temple precincts would be like several football fields. It's a very large area. So he's not actually in the temple building, the sanctuary. Don't think of that. Uh, don't think of it as though he went inside somebody's church and started pushing things around. Things. No, yeah. no. And so out in this large plaza, there were sellers of animals and uh, money changers and so on, because you couldn't bring uh, uh, pagan coins with inappropriate images or something right into the precincts and say, I want to buy a, uh, a, an animal that qualifies for a very holy sacrifice. And so there were rules about this. Well, what apparently had happened was the animal trade had become very lucrative and the area where the Gentiles were allowed to congregate and pray because they couldn't get real close to the sanctuary the way Jewish men could. And so Gentile men are further away. And so I think Jesus saw that the commercial interests and perhaps some other corrupt practices were encroaching on uh, an area uh, where the Gentiles could congregate and pray. And he saw that as a terrible testimony. Um, for, for Jesus, uh, the faith of Israel, belief in one God, the God of Abraham and the patriarchs, a covenant God, not, not this polytheism, Greco-Roman gods and all the rest of that, but the one true God, the creator of the world. What a testimony and with it, what a responsibility, a spiritual lighthouse to the world. And that's the passage he quotes from Isaiah 56. This house called after God's name is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you turned it into a commercial enterprise, perhaps corrupt on the edges. You have transformed what should be this uh, grand and glorious testimony to the world into the cave of robbers. That's literally what the text says. It's often translated den of thieves or something like that. But the Greek text literally says a cave of robbers. It's a phrase right out of Jeremiah chapter 7. And no ruling priest wants to hear anybody talking about Jeremiah 7. That passage talked about a corrupt and oppressive priesthood that was doomed. And so Jesus, in effect, is warning them, you keep this up, and what happened to the first temple long ago, which led to destruction, 
it's going to happen to you too. And that's why they're angry. But they can't act against Jesus because some people love it. And they, they don't know what to do. So it's a very interesting and important passage. I'm glad we're talking about it. So it, the last verse that I read there is, yeah, they're, they're starting to now plot. How can we? So yeah, I think that, that kind of says it all. Once again, this is a proof of a good Jesus being a good teacher. It's not the opposite of what the skeptics like to say, the Caleb the atheist is saying here at all. Um, you know, I think uh, in our society today, a lot of atheists and skeptics uh, quite foolishly have this biased, stupid view of Jesus as a lovey-dovey hippie or something. Oh, I love you. You love me. All this Barney nonsense type hippy-dippy stuff. Uh, obviously, that that is a key important essential aspect the, the fact is yeah jesus did have the positive elements he was lovey-dovey he loves us um love is the most important thing that's why he does what he does and it's out of love that he enacts justice and wants justice and is offended and righteously angry appropriately so that's the right emotion to have when you see people turning god's temple into a den of thieves and corrupting the good purpose of salvation just to make money that's the proper reaction i mean that's the reaction that consistently god and jesus had in the old testament they would pronounce judgment when sin got to a point where it was just so unbearable they needed to be judged for the good of everybody else um and that's what jesus is giving them a taste of here he's reminding them in jeremiah 7 you're just like that corrupt priesthood remember what happened to them the same will happen to you and stuff. And this is a warning, a loving and edifying warning in harsh terms. It's tough love, so to speak, to get you to wake up and repent from these evil ways. Um, so this is one of the most loving, good things I've ever seen. Um, this proves Jesus is a good moral teacher. The only reason you would think it proves he's not a good moral teacher is if you're biased by your cultural blinders where you think, Oh, in order to be good, you have to be a hippie dippy and just, oh, we all love each other. Slap me in the face. Okay, I'll take it. And, you know, um, and there's no, no aspect of the other side of the coin where God is righteous and just and has to punish the evil satanic bad guys of this world and that sort of thing. It, it's got to be both sides. You can't pick and choose what you like. And that's what a lot of atheists and skeptics here are doing and in fact they're corrupting an evil by doing that and we've seen how sjw's and leftists today have screwed up our world with this pretending new virtue virtue signal and political correctness oh we're being the lovey doveys we're the good people sure we're we're you know stabbing you in the back and killing you and slandering you behind behind the back but listen to how good my speech is. I, you know, Biden, I, I can destroy the world and the economy and uh, crime going rampantly up, but oh, we're loving the criminals. We're just letting them get away with it. We don't want to be racist. So what if they go rape, kill and steal and loot and riot and burn things down? We love them because we, want to, we don't want to be racist. We want equality. So we're just going to let them do it. No, that's evil. That is satanic to the nth degree. Um, so yeah, I, seeing Jesus be offended at the moral corruption and degradation and absolute disgusting way they twisted God's house for evil purposes, 
if Jesus didn't react this way, then I would say he's not a good moral teacher. Then I would say something's wrong. So, yeah, I, I just don't, I think it's just bias on the part and a cultural bias specifically, whereby we, we have this vision of Jesus as the, the meek and mild hippy dippy. Um, no, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, we have to take the full picture of what Jesus is, the good. Yes, he, he did have that loving aspect to him, of course, but love manifests itself in terms of different ways, including tough love approaches as well. Okay, um, so another thing here is about Jesus encouraged people to give up their, their family ties and stuff like this, and this is seen as supposedly bad. Um, so let me have another scholar address this issue, and he mentioned specifically the burial. Um, so some guy goes up to Jesus and says, hey, uh, I'd love to follow you, but just let me bury my dead dad first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Your priority is to follow me. And Caleb the atheist, oh, that's a cult leader. Um, well, let's have a scholar, Dr. Craig Keener, respond, respond to this and shed a little light on what's actually being said here. You go preach the kingdom of God. Now, does that sound harsh to anyone? But Jesus takes precedence over other obligations. That much is clear. But how dead was his father? When someone died, immediately mourners would gather. You can remember Jairus' daughter, where mourners are already there by the time Jesus gets there. At least two mourners were required, even for the poorest person, that was the custom. The mourners were called keeners. I like that. This helped to induce proper grieving. In, in some cultures, uh, often in Western culture, we, we hold in the grief, we try to control ourselves, and then a year later, uh, somehow we have a nervous breakdown. But some cultures are very good at expressing their grief. They have rituals that help them to express their grief. And Jewish culture was like that. They would, they would uh, sit for seven days. It's called sitting shiva, sitting for seven days. People would bring them food, uh, and they would, they would just do nothing but mourn for the seven days. And then afterward, uh, there would be a, another period of mourning for a year. Well, they had professional mourners come who would help the family to grieve, to get out to grieve. They would, they would mourn with them. But... If the father has just died, according to Jewish custom, this person wouldn't be out talking to a rabbi first. If he, if he knows that his father has died, then he's going to be home attending to the burial. So what's he doing away from the what's he doing away from the house? Well, uh, uh, by the way, that's a picture of me uh, morning after I get uh, evaluations from my students. Anyway. Um, Right away, after the, after the person died, the, the corpse would be laid in a, something like a stretch or a beer and, and carried to the tomb. Everyone who saw the procession would join it from behind. Rabbis would even let out their classes uh, for, for funeral processions or wedding processions. The widow or the, or the mother of the deceased would walk in front of the beer. According to later rabbis, who said that Eve introduced death into the world, so she has to walk in front of it. Uh, that's probably a later idea, but they had some negative, some of them had some negative views towards women. But anyway, um, that wasn't nice. But 
But the widow or the mother would walk in front of the bier. If you remember when, when Jesus speaks to the widow of Nahum in Luke chapter 7, he speaks to the widow first, then he touches the bier. He doesn't come in behind the funeral procession. He's not planning to simply join the procession. He's coming from the front, speaks to her first, and then raises her son. Well, this son should be involved in a funeral procession. He shouldn't be out talking with the rabbi. The, the eldest son would leave the corpse in the antechamber of the tomb. If the deceased had no son, the nearest of kin would do it. In John's case, John's disciples did it, uh, which highlights the fact that Jesus' disciples didn't do it for him. And then the family would sit and mourn for seven days, sitting Shiva, while others came to comfort them. And you know, they didn't have to do anything. Uh, the, the, the family members didn't have to take care of anything the way we do with funerals in our Western culture. Um, others would just take care of them. That's why Mary and Martha met with Jesus separately in John chapter 11, because somebody had to stay there with all the guests who had come. Um, so what's going on? Why is, why is he talking about this? Well, there's, there's a couple possibilities that have been suggested. One possibility is that this is using a figure of speech that's found in some Semitic languages where the person is saying, I must first bury my father, requesting that uh, one be able to wait until the father died. Maybe the father wasn't dead yet. Well, I have to stay around and fulfill my final filial obligation before I leave. And that's been suggested by Kenneth Bailey, who's very familiar with some of those issues. There's also another possibility, and that's the possibility that the son is referring to secondary burial. He's already buried his father once, but then the corpse was left to decompose for one year. And some, some rabbis apparently even thought that this decomposition helped atone for sins. Uh, so that um, one, one rabbi was uh, a moth was starting to eat behind his ear and his, his, uh, his widow said, no, uh, let, it, let it do that. That will help atone for his sins. But in any case, after one year, the son would return to gather up the bones into a box, an ossuary, and then slide it into a slot in the wall. This was secondary burial. And if the father is already dead, it's possible that this is the kind of burial that the son is talking about, hence requesting as much as a year's delay. Well, even if Jesus is not presenting this particular demand as urgent, it's, it's no light thing that he's asking for. Because whether one's referring to the primary burial or the secondary burial, this was a son's greatest responsibility. In the, in the book of Tobit, it talks a lot about burying the dead. And Tobit is honorably doing that. It's considered an honorable thing throughout the ancient Mediterranean world to, to bury the dead. And, considered very dishonorable not to allow the dead to be buried. Well, Tobias, Tobit's son, the story of Tobit, his, his final filial obligation is to bury his father. So whether it's talking about primary burial or secondary burial, this was a, this was a great responsibility. Many sages considered honoring parents the greatest commandment. And we have that not only in the rabbis, but in Josephus. And burying them the greatest expression of that commandment. To fail to bury one's father would so shame the, the person who failed to do it 
but they could be an outcast from the village for the rest of their lives. The only one that could rightly take such precedence over parents, and we see this in Deuteronomy 13, was God himself. Rabbis sometimes said, all right, so you get you get the kind of point here. Um, and the main point here is uh, there's at least a couple different interpretations. There's some nuance here as to what's going on and what this uh, verse is saying. Um, and it, it might not be that it's as important, um, you know, like, oh, their father just died and they're in pain and they want to go bury their father and he's uh, the heck with them. Let your being callous, let the dead bury the dead. That's not necessarily what's what's at play here. So that's the, the main point that I wanted to see is once you understand things in context, it isn't how it seems to modern Western fundamentally atheists and skeptics who twist and don't understand what the text is actually saying or what Jesus is commanding here. But irrespective, the, the main point that stands, God takes precedence over all earthly responsibilities. And that is for the betterment of everyone, including his father, including him, his family. When you follow Jesus, you help everybody. You do, when you do the good thing, what God tells you to do, you help yourself, you help God, you help everyone uh, in, the, in the end, in the long run. Um, so that's why you follow me. Um, don't worry about the small things. When I, I'm God, when I tell you to do something, you do it. And, um, you know, it'll work out for the best. I have faith in me, trust in me. So that's the point that Jesus is, is saying in this rather remarkable way. Um, so yeah, uh, there's nothing immoral here at all in terms of what Jesus is saying, especially when we understand a little bit more of the context or the what the biblical scholars actually think is going on here as opposed to what Caleb the atheist is thinking is going on in this case. Uh, it's not just, oh, my dad just died yesterday. Just let me bury him and I'll be right with you. Uh, no, that's not what the text is necessarily saying here. So yeah. Um, okay, uh, the last little bit that Caleb mentions. So this one is a bit of a toughie. I do have to admit, um, Jesus as a false prophet, again, assuming that's linked to the truth or falsity of the specific hypothesis that we're assessed that Caleb the atheist is assessing here. Uh, this one has some merit, perhaps. Did didn't Jesus say the generation will not pass till all things have taken place? What's a potential response to this? He was wrong, right? Well, there are several different interpretations, and the one I'm going to go for is um, to share with you guys, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig and his Doctrine of the Last Things, part 10 and 11, gets into this issue of the del delay of the parousia or the second coming of Christ. He gives different interpretations, but specifically, I want to highlight his contextual uh, explanation of this. So here, here's a brief explanation of his approach. So I'm going to suggest a different view that doesn't have a name. Uh, so I'll just give it a name myself. The apparent conflict is due to what I'll call contextual ambiguity. The idea behind this proposal is the well-known fact that context critically affects interpretation. How a sentence or saying is to be interpreted depends crucially upon the context in which it appears. 
I think that all of us recognize that this is the case. For example, take the statement, that's exactly what I think. That is completely ambiguous unless you know the context in which it is spoken. Context is crucial to interpretation. Now, in the Gospels, it is a well-known fact among New Testament scholars that the evangelists exercise considerable editorial freedom in giving back the teachings and sayings of Jesus. They will move them around, and sometimes these sayings will appear in different contexts. When they are in these different contexts, they can seem to take on different meaning. And I want to suggest that these passages about the second coming of Christ that appear to suggest that Jesus thought that this was going to take place within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses is a false impression that could be attributed to this contextual ambiguity. All right, so here's, here's a quick example. Uh, this is from part 11. Um, so this is Mark 1330, which is something that, uh, he, well, he doesn't mention this specifically, but talking about the generation, this generation will not pass and that sort of thing. So what's going on there? Similarly, look at Mark 1330 in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. What was he referring to in the original context when he said all these things? This saying comes in Mark after the prophecy of the return of the Son of Man in verses 24 to 27. So in this context, you think that he's talking about the return of the Son of Man when he says all these things will take place before this generation passes away. But look at the broader context of Mark 13. The phrase, all these things, occurs in Mark 13 in verses 4, 23, and 29 before Jesus uses this phrase in verse 30. Look at Mark 13 and verse 4. Tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign when these things are all to be accomplished? Then in verse 23, after describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the false Christs that will come, Jesus says, but take heed, I have told you all things beforehand. Then in verse 29, so also, when you see these things taking place, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Here again, we ask, what are these things? The things that he has been talking about with respect to the destruction of Jerusalem. These things will happen before the return of the Son of Man. The things that he is talking about are the events prior to the second coming of Christ. Then he says, I say to you, this generation will not pass away before 
all these things take place. So in the original context, this saying could well have been about the destruction of Jerusalem and the tribulation that will happen at that time. But because Mark has, in verses 24 to 27, a passage about the return of the Son of Man, one gets the impression, reading verse 30, that Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is going to return before this generation dies off. But it may well have been that in the original context, what was being discussed is the destruction of Jerusalem and the trials and signs that will occur prior to the Son of Man's return. In fact, Jesus then goes on in verse 32 to say, but of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How could Jesus have been predicting that his return would occur before this generation is dead when he himself says that even the Son does not know when the return of the Son of Man will take place? All right. So, yeah, I think you get the hint there that there's credible answers um, and different understandings of how to make sense of these so-called problems that atheists and skeptics like to bring up. Um, now, again, obviously, there, there are multiple sides to this, and there's multiple different interpretations of how to make sense of these verses. I like Dr. William Lane Craig's contextual approach, um, so I wanted to raise that because I think it makes a lot of sense. But there are other Christian interpretations. So we don't have to just assume that, oh, well, Jesus did, in fact, predict that the end would come soon, within a generation or something like that, and then say, therefore, Jesus is a false prophet. Remember, in this context, it's Caleb the atheist who is making the claim. He bears the burden of proof. You, you can just suggest these interpretations. He has to prove that they're probably false. And namely, in order to prove that his interpretation is the best or most probable interpretation of the text. He can't just state that, oh, well, I interpret this text as saying, yeah, that this generation will not pass literally before the end times will come. You can't just say that as an atheist. You have to prove that. Otherwise, it doesn't count to, as evidence lowering the prior probability. You bear the burden of proof, atheist not Christians, um, are different. I just can just say, yeah, seems like what William Lane Craig just gave is definitely an equally probable. If not, given what we know about biblical scholarship, our background there, our background knowledge of how gospel, the gospel writers used the Jesus traditions and moved it into different contexts and stuff, that's a fact that nobody disagrees with. Actually, it, it seems more probable than not that the contextual explanation is probably true over and against your skeptical interpretation trying to force this to be a false prophecy. So you failed. You cannot use this as an element, just as you, I think you failed with a lot of your other uh, as evidential aspects that you think lower the prior probability. I think you failed your burden of proof. You have not proven these aspects are actually true on a balance of probabilities. And that's what you have to do 
in order to use them and have them contribute to lowering the prior probability lower than the 50% default uh, rate. Remember, again, in Bayes' theorem, 51% to 100% means that the hypothesis is probably true. 50 is the default. It means it's either true or, or it's false. We don't know. 49% to 0% means that it's probably false. The hypothesis is probably false. Um, in order to lower the probability down to the 40, shift it down from 50, down to the 49 to 0% range, atheists, you have the burden of proof. You have to prove this stuff is true against any and all rebutting and or undercutting defeaters that Christians can throw out there, such as the ones that I've been showing you in these videos of uh, world's experts, biblical scholars, and Christian philosophers and apologists here. So yeah, all in all, I, I don't think that I think that Caleb, the atheist, has done a great job in providing, at least superficially speaking, some kind of substantive points. Um, I think that he's making certain assumptions based on what he believes Christians would say. He, he has this in mind, but he hasn't established, to my mind, that these factors are in fact relevant to the hypothesis, and nor has he even clarified what is the hypothesis? Is it just Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, like maybe naturally, it's not specifying who or how he raised from the dead. Uh, is it you no know, God raised Jesus from the dead? Is it God raised Jesus from the dead? And then implying given he had a motivating reason, are we specifying what that motivating reason is such as to authenticate Christianity is true or Christianity proper is true? Um, because we don't know that, I just have no way of evaluating whether or not these prior probability factors are relevant. And in fact, if, it, if it's just an open hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, given he had motivating reasons to do so on that front, the false messiah, the false prophet, the being a bad moral teacher just doesn't speak to that at all. I mean, God can raise someone like that from the dead for any given reason, for any number of given reasons we can speculate. So it's in that case, these are totally irrelevant background knowledge. Or So yeah, I think some more work is, is definitely needed on that front in terms of specifying what's your hypothesis that you're trying to prove specifically and proving that these elements are relevant to that specific hypothesis. So a lot of work there. Next on the individual features. Um, so I'm not gonna give Caleb the atheist a rough time because I know that Caleb, the, the true Caleb, uh, the, my friend, the Christian, he knows all of these counters that I've raised to these factors. He's well aware in, of the pros and cons of the various positions on this front. Um, I'm just kind of having a good, a fun little go at this fictional Caleb the atheist. Uh, you know, when he puts on that hat, uh, there's something about that, that atheist hat that just makes Rouse me up and I have to refute the, the nonsense that comes out of his uh, mouth there. But <laughs> all right, cool. So, so yeah, with that said, um, I think at this point, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, so I'm going to break this up into three different parts because next time he's going to be going on. They predicted the end of the world would happen. He's going on. He's moving on to the historic, his second component or aspect of his study, which is the historical evidence. So I'm going to break this up into two or three parts. So. I'll stop here with the prior probability assessment, and then in, I'll do a next video on the historical facts and or perhaps his, his third aspect on the explanatory 
power uh, aspects. Um, we'll just see how long that takes. But yeah, for right now, I'm going to finish off with the prior probability for part one. Um, and perhaps I'll do a part two and maybe a part three, if need be, uh, to finish off my assessment of this video and review of Caleb the Atheist's case against the resurrection of Jesus. So that said, thank you for listening. I hope this was, was helpful. Don't mind my uh, bombastic um, tone in some places or, or that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, um, I hope the substantive points that I, counterpoints that I've raised were, were helpful to you and to Caleb in some way. So all right, take care.